Asking whether procalcitonin is useful is a lot like asking whether the white cell count is useful. It's just way too broad a question. And you find it along any pointy spots in your body, and it keeps the tendon from fraying. You get one shot at this, and I never ever wanted to mess this up, so I would look at this silly little card before every time I did it. He described that pain as a, quote, painful pain that made my stomach hard, end quote. It's kind of a toughie. Never be an interesting patient. Do you remember the 21st night of September? Love was changing the minds of pretenders while chasing the clouds away. Our hearts were ringing in the key that our souls were singing as we danced in the night. Remember? Tip your waitresses, everybody. Don't forget about Trish. Wish her a happy birthday. Well, MRAP listeners, you're back for another month, and I am here with Dr. Anand Swaminathan to give you September MRAP. Jan, I'm so excited to be back. We have such a great program in front of us, so many good segments. I don't want to give any spoilers away because there's so much good stuff this month. Yeah, I think that's good advice. There are a lot of really good pearls in this month and some really good clinical cases that I think you guys will really enjoy. But why don't we start off with a case? You got one for me, Swami? I've got the perfect case to kick us off, Jan. The case. I've got a 52-year-old man. He's got a history of hypertension, but otherwise pretty healthy. Comes in with four days of cough and a fever. He's got a heart rate of about 112, temps 102, BP's fine, 140 over 90, SATs 97%. I walk in the room, he's not tachypnic, he's non-toxic. I'm gonna take COVID off the table. I mean, for three years, everything is COVID, and this could be COVID, but we did a test already. He did a test at home, he's COVID negative, we're gonna believe it. And when I examine him, because Jan, I actually did examine him, I actually did take my stethoscope off of my neck, put it in my ears and listen to him, and he's got some junky breath sounds just on the left side. The right is totally clear, but in the left side, kind of in the lower middle area, he's got some crackles and some ronchi. Well, I love that you took COVID off the table for once. That's great <laughs> to not have to think about it. So No COVID on the main show, Jen. That was the yeah, rule. <laughs> I think that's right. So, you know, it's sounding very pulmonary to me. I feel like you're tricking me in some way. It's sounding kind of straightforward. And I'm going to just assume that there's not a lot more on the history or the physical that I need to know about. Is that right? Yeah, he looks pretty good otherwise. There's really okay. not much else. It's really straightforward. Okay, so I'm kind of walking down a pulmonary pathway. So I'm going to start thinking about what I want to order because the guy sounds pretty stable. And, you know, at the very minimum, I'd probably order a chest x-ray, maybe some labs. Kind of depends on where I'm working. If I picture myself at an urgent care, for example, I might not order a full set of labs, maybe just the x-ray. If I'm in an ED, I'm probably ordering the full meal deal. So I'll say labs and x-ray. What do you think? I think that's a totally reasonable way to go. I think it'd be really hard to not get an x-ray when you have abnormal vital signs, you have some focal findings on your examination. So we did order a chest x-ray and it kind of brought up the question, Jan, because of course I've got learners and we started talking about this case because it does seem relatively straightforward, but how good is x-ray for diagnosing pneumonia? Pneumonia is really what we're worried about here. My pretest probability for this guy is pretty high fever, cough, he's got a little bit of tachycardia, and he's got these abnormal breath sounds. So let's say that I get the x-ray and it's normal. Would you drop the diagnosis of pneumonia at that point, or would you keep going forward with it? I probably, ugh, this is always a tough one. If the x-ray was normal, would I drop the diagnosis? I probably would not drop the diagnosis, and I'll tell you why. You told me that this patient has a fever and an abnormal lung exam, and to me, that means pneumonia. So 
almost no matter what the chest x-ray shows, I'm still going to go with pneumonia. However, the chest x-ray can help me when it's positive. It can help me when it shows me unusual things like a pleural effusion or maybe some cardiomegaly or something unusual. But even if it was negative, I'm probably still going to end up with pneumonia. And I think that's a really important point for us to understand that sometimes the test doesn't negate what you thought going into the test. And we want to really pick a test that helps us in, in pushing us forward with our diagnosis, but we have to understand the limitations. So when you look at the data, x-ray has a sensitivity of about 70%-ish, not, not that great. So if you get a negative chest x-ray, but you've got a good story for pneumonia, you probably still have pneumonia. And we do have better diagnostic testing. We could just get a CT scan jam, but seems like a little bit of overkill in a very stable patient, a lot of radiation, a lot of resources. I do have another tool that I can bring to the bedside. I could do ultrasound. So Jan, are you or your residents using ultrasound for this kind of an indication? I have to be honest. I have not seen the residents doing it. I certainly am not trained to do it. I can't say that I think that that's a common application now. I work in a place with an ultrasound fellowship, so I, you know, probably that slice of the pie of really ultrasound interested people are doing that, but I think widespread in our department, no. And the studies show that ultrasound performs extremely well. In fact, it's way better than a chest x-ray. Of course, it's way better than a chest x-ray in skilled hands, and you kind of alluded to that. If you're not skilled with this, you might not be able to get the images that you need and really make that diagnosis but the sensitivities are in the mid to high 90s. So it's way better than chest x-ray. And of course, there's lower resource utilization because I can just go to the bedside and do it without waiting for that chest x-ray to get done. In fact, it performs really well when you combine it with your lung auscultation. So the physical exam is not dead. Combining those physical exam findings with the ultrasound can be really helpful. You know, I, this makes sense to me. I feel like I've heard this before. I've heard papers on EMA on this topic. So I'm familiar with the concept. I think that you're right. In skilled hands, it probably does perform pretty well. It's just a matter of who, who has the hands and whether you even have a machine. And I do think that this is probably not done by most emergency physicians. But, you know, I, I bet you're going to argue to me that it is not out of reach. I think it's well within reach for us to be able to do this. And just to be clear, Jan, I didn't train doing lung ultrasound. It wasn't something that we did at that time, maybe a little bit for pneumothorax, but it can be done. And I don't think it's that difficult to learn to do. And so I wanted to learn how to do this, and I started by doing two things. Number one was ultrasounding a lot of normal lungs. And that's kind of what you do with any imaging modality is you learn normal really, really well so that when something is not normal, you're like, oh, I know that's not normal. I might not know exactly what it is, but I know it's not normal. So I ultrasounded a lot of normal lungs to get that picture in my mind of what normal lungs look like. And then the second thing was ultrasounding lungs after I had a diagnosis. So I have a patient who comes in with fever and a cough. I get a chest x-ray showing a focal infiltrate. And now I go over an ultrasound where that infiltrate is so I can see what does a pneumonia look like on ultrasound, knowing that I've already seen it on x-ray. So now I'm learning what the abnormal looks like. I know what the normal looks like. And then after I've done a lot of that, I'm ready to kind of wheel it out and use it instead of my x-ray in select circumstances. You are a model citizen for continuing education, <laughs> Dr. Swami. I mean, oh, it Jen, really is. Jen, wait, wait, I want to dip this one right in the bud. This is me not wanting to be dumber than my residents, okay? Because they were <laughs> like, oh, why don't we just look with ultrasound? I'm like, yeah, why don't we just do that? I don't know how to do it. The challenge was if they're learning to do it, I got to be able to do it too. Yeah, okay, that's true. I agree that. I, I You know, <laughs> chest x-ray is really, you know, it is disappointing. And you're right. And like going back to when you asked me, like, you know, what I even get the chest x-ray. And then I admit that if the chest x-ray was normal, that I would still go with pneumonia. You know, the utility is pretty limited. So 
I like this idea. I like that I could improve upon the crappy chest x-ray. So if you're telling me I could learn to do that, I'm up for it. I think we can learn. And I think what we need to know again is what the normal looks like and then what we're looking for that's abnormal. So we know looking for beelines, that's fluid in the lungs. We see it all the time with acute pulmonary edema. In patients with pneumonia, you'll see focal or unilateral beelines. So you'll just see it in one area where that consolidation is because beelines is just fluid in the lung tissue. You might see some subpleural consolidations, which is one of those things that I can describe what it looks like, Jan, but you just got to look it up and see it. And once you see it enough times, you'll be able to find it when you do your ultrasound. And then you can also look for things like paranomonic effusions, which can kind of push you in that direction. In fact, sometimes the ultrasound really pushes you towards a procedure that the x-ray might not have shown you. It might not have shown you that effusion. Then you're like, ooh, the ultrasound shows a big effusion. Maybe I need to go after that effusion or the patient's not going to get better. And I think once you do these over and over again, you find a couple abnormals, you start to get in your head what they look like, it becomes a lot easier. But Jan, one of the things that it does require is it requires time. And granted, getting a chest x-ray requires time too, right? Because you got to order the chest x-ray, you got to wait for them to go over a chest x-ray and then get it read or, or you have to read it. But the ultrasound takes your physical time in the room, which can be a boon, but it can also kind of slow you down with all of the other things that you're doing. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the obstacles for some people. That's true. And maybe on some shifts, you can do it and some shifts you can't. So, I mean, I think that's a realistic statement. All right. So, Jane, let's go back to our patient because we got the x-ray and it was kind of equivocal. So we went over with ultrasound and the ultrasound did show some changes that were concerning for pneumonia. It showed some subpleural consolidations in the left upper lung field where we were also hearing these abnormal lung findings. And honestly, did it really push us more towards the diagnosis of pneumonia? Not really. We were already pretty sold that this was pneumonia, but the ultrasound kind of clinched it for us. So we knew what we had now. And the question was, where do we go now? Yeah, so now we need to choose our antibiotics and we need to decide dispo, obviously. Now, this is a patient you told me who came in with a temp of 102 Fahrenheit, which is pretty high and was tachycardic. So I'd want, you know, a little period of observation in the ED and maybe a few interventions to see how things shake out. So. I'd start with some antipyretics and some IV or even really PO fluids to get those vitals to normalize and then see how the patient's looking. I'm on the fence of whether I'm going outpatient, inpatient, you know, or even OBS at this point. Yeah, and the tachycardia here does kind of match with that fever, but we'd still like to see it go away. We'd like to see the patient respond. So we did exactly that. Gave him some acetaminophen. We gave him some oral fluids. And then we just kind of waited. And, and sometimes I think we, this is where we've talked about this before. You, you draw some labs because it buys you some time to observe the patient. We didn't even bother. The guy looked pretty good and he was taking fluids. So we're like, you know what? Just sit and chill here. I'll come back in an hour and see how you're doing. So we did the reassessment. Patient looks pretty good. And we kind of talked to him and said, you know, what do you think? How do you feel? And he said, I feel pretty good. I'll, I'll go home. So I'm like, okay, great. So patient wants to go home. I want him to go home. So now we're going to send him home. And the question was, what antibiotics should we give them? Mm, so this is a good one because, you know, it wasn't so long ago that outpatient management for pneumonia was most commonly just a prescription for, you know, azithromycin and times they have a changed and now we've got antibiotic resistance and we've been talking about that over the years. So I'm probably going to have to look locally at my, you know, local antibiogram to see how much resistance, strep pneumo resistance we have. Is that what you do? Yeah, I think that's the really important thing here, right? Strep pneumo is the most common bug and azithromycin because we've overused it a huge amount in the last 10, 15 years, it's not so useful against strep pneumo. The IDSA recommends that you choose an alternate empiric antibiotic coverage when the main organism, the most likely organism, which is strep pneumo, has greater than a 25% resistance to the antibiotic you're going to pick. For azithromycin, it's over 25%. 
across the country. It doesn't matter which region you go to, azithromycin's not so great against strep pneumo, and in some parts of the country, it's over 50% resistant. So we really can't reach for azithromycin alone, although it does do a good job with the atypical still. So the atypicals are going to be well covered by azithro, but not going to cover the strep pneumo so well. Another one that we really like, Jan is doxy. I mean, let's be honest, if you're stuck on a desert island with only one antibiotic, probably going to choose doxycycline. It's a great antibiotic for so many things, but even that one's limited. In some places, the resistance is reaching that 25%, but definitely better than azithro. So I don't know, what are you left with? You're left with fluoroquinolones. Resistance isn't bad and it does cover the atypicals, but lots of side effects. Got to start thinking about C. diff. You could also combine different things. So do like an amoxicillin plus azithro or azithro plus doxy. That combination might be good, but it really is hard to get a single antibiotic outside of the fluoroquinolones oral antibiotic that you can send these patients home on. So in LA, because you know we're on different parts of the country here, which is kind of nice to see, what are you guys reaching for, for a community-acquired pneumonia that you're sending home? You know what's interesting now that I'm sitting here thinking about it? I haven't actually diagnosed a community-acquired pneumonia in a while. It's been so COVID, 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 COVID <laughs> that you know, I haven't really seen one in a while. So you know, I, I may not be as up on this as I should be, but um, I think at this point, for the most part, I think the azithrodoxy is sounding pretty common So, in terms of what we do. I agree the azithro is not irrelevant. The atyp atypical coverage is important. So we do like doxycycline. It's cheap. You know, we work at a public hospital. So doxyazithro is a combination that I would probably be reaching for. And I think it's within our resistance pattern acceptability. And sometimes you have to take into account, can the patient get two antibiotics filled? Is that going to be doable for them? And this guy looked pretty good, was pretty healthy actually had pretty good follow-up. And so we decided to go with Doxy alone. And we talked to him and said, you know, this might not work. It's possible, but you know, I think it's going to be okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to give you Doxy and then we're going to have you come back in 72 hours. Or if you can see your doctor in 72 hours, great, but we kind of know how that works out. So I'm like, why don't you come back here in 72 hours? We'll take a look. Patient didn't come back. So I called him back, Jen. I called him on day three and said, Hey, you didn't come back. He goes, yeah, cause I feel fine. I'm like, great. Wonderful. So we ended up working out with Doxy alone, but I think if I had a higher risk patient, a couple more comorbid conditions, I might pair it. So amoxicillin plus Doxy or amoxicillin plus azithro might've been the way that I would go in that situation. But this person, it worked out with the Doxy alone. I think that's reasonable when you have a pretty healthy patient who you know you can get good follow-up on. Yeah, I'm a Doxy fan. It's BID. You know, if you added amoxicillin, now you're talking, you know, more frequent dosing and a higher risk of non-compliance. So I think and a lot more plan... diarrhea. Let's be honest. Amox, amox <laughs> equals diarrhea. Yeah. So you're right. You're absolutely. And then, and then does the person stop taking the antibiotic because they get diarrhea? Sometimes. So the, all of these things kind of came into play. We thought about all of these different things. But what I really wanted to highlight, Jan, was this is a really run-of-the-mill case. You said, like, I think you're tricking me. No tricks here. This is a really run-of-the-mill, community-acquired pneumonia. But thinking through some of these pieces, the chest x-ray isn't perfect. You can't always rely on it. Don't be convinced out of pneumonia just because your chest x-ray looks good. Learn how to do lung ultrasound because it's kind of fun to do and gives you the diagnosis a lot faster. It performs a lot better than chest x-ray. And then really think about the resistance patterns in your hospital. What's probably the best thing to do is instead of thinking about this every time you see a patient with a community-acquired pneumonia, is just kind of come up with, with a system, either with your infectious disease folks or with your microbiology folks, or just with your department and say, community-acquired pneumonia, really simple. They're going home. Here's what we're going to give them. The local resistance patterns matter. We're lucky. You know, we have a great pharmacist. They, the pharmacists look at the formulary. They come up with what the recommendation is at the time for us for various common conditions, pneumonia being one of them. So I do think you need to kind of come to a consensus with your local place, what your formulary is, what your patient's normally use, what you, all those things figure into it and come up with a good plan. 
Absolutely. All right, well, like I said, Jan, simple case, but I think bread and butter emergency medicine. I can't believe it's no butter. And that's gonna bring us into some of the stuff in the month that may not necessarily be bread and butter, but some great topics for us to hit on that we think about all the time in emergency medicine. And there are a lot of things that I love here. We've talked about this before, Jan. They're all like my children. All the segments are my children. I love them all equally, except for the ones I like more. And the ones <laughs> that I like more this month, I love the headache piece that Mel did with Wendy, one of the people who works with us, so near and dear to our hearts, going through this process of, of this headache that was very difficult to figure out what it was and get it taken care of. And we're going to let the listeners kind of listen in as they go through that process. And then the other one I really liked and kind of comes back to this pneumonia piece is the use of procalcitonin in the emergency department. Justin Morgenstern doing a little bit of a rant, a little bit of a deep dive into the literature that gives us a perspective on how good that test actually is. Yeah, I was really happy to get a piece on procalcitonin. We've had a lot of listeners ask us for that. So I hope that that satisfies everybody's procalcitonin uh, desires. For me, this month, there were some really great cases as well. I liked, of course, I love rural medicine and Vanessa's case this month of the gurgling tummy and that walking through that case with her is always such a joy. And then we have Gita Pensa back talking with Brian Hayes about some antibiotic issues that also are very pertinent to what we just discussed in the case this month. And I love reviewing antibiotics and pharmacology in general and doing it with the two of them is always so fun. I love we can tie them all back to the initial piece that we start with for the month. So some really great stuff. And with that, we are going to launch into the month. We hope that you enjoy it as much as we did. And Jen, I'll see you on the other side of the mailbag. Let's kick it off. Let's go, guys. So I saw a 61-year-old male patient who had a history of diabetes, and he presented to the emergency room with complaints of abdominal pain. Abdominal pain, diabetic. What could go wrong? Nothing. Nothing is going to go wrong. Her name's Vanessa Cardi. It's a rural medicine piece. Let's continue. Rural medicine talks. At triage, his vitals were all within normal limits and he looked very well, so he was triaged as a priority five. It wasn't busy in the emergency room that day, so I entered into his room to assess him within about 35 minutes of actually arriving at the hospital. He's known as a bit of a storyteller, not in a bad way. He's great at telling stories, and he settled into his story mode when I asked him what brought him to the emergency room that day. Apparently, six months prior, while he was out at his hunting cabin in the bush, he drank some spring water from a new source. He said the water tasted fine, but that evening he'd had some abdominal pain and loose stools. The abdominal pain persisted for about one week. It did get less and less intense each day, but it was still there for a good week or so. And then it slowly went away. He described that pain as a, quote, painful pain that made my stomach hard, end quote. He added that sometimes when the pain was particularly bad, his stomach would gurgle very loudly. He said that in order to try and deal with this, he ate prunes for breakfast for a few days, and this did kind of help, and gradually the symptoms just resolved, and he kind of forgot about it. But then, a week prior to his presentation, he was at a family gathering at a different cabin in the bush, and once again, albeit inadvertently this time, he drank some spring water. And it turns out that the water was from the same spring as six months prior. So now he was really on high alert for any symptoms to recur. The first time that it happened, his entire family had also been drinking the same water that day and they hadn't had any symptoms. And again, this time the family was drinking the same water and they were all fine. But a few hours after drinking that water, he noticed the same symptom pattern return. Hey, it's spring water. It's all natural. It's just all natural. Except that every deer and dingo and thing that lives upstream is taking giant dumps in there. Yeah, and the others. He described intermittent abdominal pain in the upper quadrants, 
some quote-unquote uncomfortableness, and lots of gurgling in my tummy and sloshing sounds. There was no associations with any loose stool, and he felt pretty much well otherwise. The same sensation occurred every day for several days, just like last time, but gradually it got less and less intense. He did notice this time that his appetite was decreased and that he felt more nauseated if he was lying flat on his back, but there was no clear relation to any food apart from the spring water issue. He had no fever or chills, no night sweats, no vomiting, no foul taste in his mouth. He wasn't burping a lot. He said he felt like his stomach was bloating on and off, but he'd had no change in weight that he'd noticed, and he'd had no cardiac or respiratory symptoms. He hadn't traveled outside the boreal forest regions of northern Quebec. He had no COVID contacts. As I mentioned before, he's a diabetic, but he was compliant with his diabetic medications, namely metformin and long-acting insulin, and he didn't take any other meds. He had never smoked cigarettes, but he did used to smoke marijuana, but even that he hadn't done for the last 10 or so years. And, as far as he knew, he didn't have any significant family history of anything apart from diabetes. He said he was wondering if he had H. pylori or maybe if he had celiac disease. He'd been doing some research online. H. pylori was certainly on my differential, but so were parasitic infections. There have been cases of Giardia up where I work and, of course, other waterborne parasites, so given the spring water connection, I knew I was probably going to be looking further into that. In terms of celiac, I was less concerned as the pattern didn't seem to fit, but at this point I wasn't ruling anything out. As he was climbing onto the examining table, and as I was doing the head and neck, cardiovascular and respiratory exam, I was kind of running through the other elements on my differential. I was of course worried about a cancer, because anytime anyone says they have weird upper abdominal pain, I kind of always worry about cancer. But I have to be honest, it wasn't high up on the list. He had no red flag symptoms, he looked hale and hearty, and the six months between symptoms flare, it just didn't really fit, and it was all kind of leading me away from that. But it was still there in the back of my mind. I thought maybe he had some referred pain from perhaps renal stones, or maybe a pyelonephritis. It's pretty unusual to have anterior pain with a pylo, but it's not unheard of. In any case, at that point he lay down on the examining table, and my hands went straight to his right upper quadrant. Felt nice and soft, same with the right lower quadrant and left lower quadrant. But coming up to the umbilicus and epigastrium and left upper quadrant, it was really quite firm. There was no rebound or guarding, but I definitely felt something that should not be there. I was trying to get a sense of the dimensions of this, so then I percussed it and found a pretty large mass in the left upper quadrant to epigastrium right down to the umbilicus. So now my mind was refocusing. Was this a massive gastric mass? Was it the spleen? His liver felt fine, but maybe he just had isolated splenomegaly. I rested the bell of my stethoscope onto the top of his abdomen while I was putting the earpieces into my ears. And that's when I noticed that my stethoscope was moving. Wait, 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 it's moving? Next you're gonna tell me you see dead people. It was pulsing, clearly and consistently pulsing. I quickly listened, and I couldn't hear any bowel sounds or bruise. And after that, I placed my hands on his mid-abdomen and left them there. And I felt the pulsation. And I also noticed him wince and kind of say, Ugh. I slowly moved my hands further and further apart until they were at least 10 centimeters apart. And I can tell you that now in my mind, I was also going, Ugh. At this point, it felt like things kind of slowed down, but apparently my feet sped up because I rushed to get the Polkus machine and brought it back into the exam room. I decided I should do this properly and do it, you know, as we teach our students and residents and do things systematically. So I started in the right upper quadrant and got a good view of the kidney and Morrison's pouch because I always start in the right upper quadrant. 
And then I went over to the left upper quadrant and got a so-so view of the kidney on that side, but to be honest, my heart was no longer really in it at this point. My brain was already focused in on the epigastrium. So I loaded the probe up with gel and placed it on the epigastrium. And what did I see? Wait, 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 I got this. Uh, Sasquatch? I saw black. A whole lot of black. A huge, black, hypoechoic mass or lesion or something. Really, all my mind was seeing was black. And I couldn't see anything behind it, like posterior towards the spine. And I couldn't really see much of anything else at all because there was so much black. I moved the probe down towards the umbilicus and the mass stayed. It did get a little smaller and kind of moved a bit off to the patient's left, but it was still there. I excused myself and ran to get my colleague, Katrina Gong. She has more experience with ultrasound than I do, so I figured I would get a second set of eyes on the scan. She came and scanned and saw the same thing. And then she was really smart because she put the probe down to the bottom of his abdomen and moved it upwards in a stepwise fashion until she saw the bifurcation of the aorta. This really helped ground us all as to what we were seeing, and for a few centimeters above the bifurcation, we were able to follow what looked like a normal aorta. This was really great because it gave us a sense of, okay, this is where things should be. Now let's see where they diverge. However, that's when the images grew harder to interpret, and at one point it looked like there might be kind of a communication between the aorta and the big black mass. I must admit I was also fairly distracted by the visible pulsations of the ultrasound probe, but there was definitely a few places where it looked like there could be a communication. There didn't seem to be any active blood flow in the big black mass, but there was definitely some thicker material in there that looked alarmingly like the patterns you might see in an aneurysm. Some slightly hyperechoic materials kind of hugging the side and posterior aspect of the vessel. So we looked at each other with pretty wide eyes and excused ourselves pretty quickly. And speaking of quickly, the next part went very quickly. I called Montreal and it was a pretty easy sell for the accepting physician there. A pulsatile abdominal mass certainly got his attention. But the rest of the process also went totally seamlessly. In fact, it was possibly the fastest medevac that has ever taken place since I started working up there. And that was purely due to luck. In fact, it was so seamless that I began to fear that it was too perfect and that clearly some massive wrench in the works was going to come along at any moment because this was just going too smoothly. We have a system in Quebec that's called EVAC, and we refer to it as the Challenger. Um, basically, it's an ICU plane that's run by the Quebec government and goes around to a lot of the remote northern communities to pick very ill patients up. And this Challenger plane happened to be heading to Montreal from further north than where we were and could stop at an airport about an hour and a half away from us in order to pick up our patient. And they were going to be there in two hours. This has literally never happened that I've gotten a medevac that quickly. And the next plane that could come wasn't going to be there for at least another four hours. So we obviously jumped at this opportunity. We scrambled a team for the ambulance and the nurse and I hopped into the back of the ambulance with the patient, a huge cooler with two units of blood and the patient's suitcase. Unfortunately, we forgot his boots, but we did have the blood. They strapped him in and I must say that I kind of winced a little bit as they really cinched that patient belt over his epigastrium, but we got on our way. Now, when we left, I didn't even have the results of any of the labs except for the gas that I had ordered before we got into the ambulance. After about 20 minutes of driving on the very bumpy road, though, we got a call just before losing self-service, and it said that all of his labs were totally normal except for hemoglobin of 115, or 11.5. So this was very reassuring that this didn't look like the blood panel of someone with advanced cancer or splenic sequestration. But it was also kind of concerning because it didn't give me another clear diagnosis for this pulsatile mass. 
His vitals stayed rock solid during the one and a half hour drive, but his abdominal pain started to recur and he was becoming more nauseated. Now this could certainly be attributed to being strapped to a stretcher in the back of an ambulance that's basically built like a metal box on square wheels. Seriously, I don't know why they don't have suspension systems in ambulances. But he responded very well to a small dose of morphine IV and four milligrams of Vendansentron. We had a maintenance IV running at a fairly low rate, as his pressure was beautiful and I didn't want to raise his pressure if that was a vascular lesion. And we made it to the other airport safe and sound. Cody, I can't tell you just how disappointed I'm going to be if this is smooth sailing the whole way. Somebody better have a terrifying experience or <laughs> I'm off the project. The accepting doctor on the evac plane was fantastic. And I hear I have to give my thanks to Dr. Charles Etienne Ploult, who was the doctor on the plane that day. He listened to my rather disorganized description of the mass that I had seen. I kept saying in my somewhat mangled French, is it possible to have a sort of aortic diverticula that's 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters at least? He looked at me a bit quizzically, but he was calm and took it all in stride and got us off the plane quickly so they could get the patient with the pulsatile abdominal mass off the ground and headed towards Montreal. So within a few hours, we were back in Chisassabee and not long after we were able to check in on some of the bloods that had been drawn in Montreal. We saw that his hemoglobin was still the same and that everything else looked good. But there was no scan shown on his list of interventions in the emergency room in Montreal. This, of course, set my mind racing. Was there no scan because he decompensated in the emergency room? Or because the POCUS showed that I was nuts? Or because they had gone straight to the OR because he had a ruptured AAA? All of these thoughts kept racing through my head all night long. So after a fairly sleepless night, the next morning a colleague was able to find out that the patient had indeed had an angioscan. And the result was, well, it was not what I was expecting. So now's the time where you have to try and guess what it was. What was it? Was it a rupturing AAA? Was it a small marsupial? Come on, what do you think this could be? Yes, that's right. Normal stomach, good. Normal spleen, good. Normal aorta, very good. But he had a 17 centimeter by 17 centimeter by 12 centimeter pancreatic pseudocyst. I knew it. Oh, I knew it all along. So I guess the pulsations we felt were the aortic pulsations transmitted through the fluid-filled cyst as a sort of fluid wave. Now, apparently, these pancreatic pseudocysts can rupture when they reach such alarming sizes, and it's often fatal when that happens. So obviously, it's great that he came in to seek medical attention, but it really does scare me when I think back about how easily this could have been missed. If he hadn't had the idea to come in that day, he wasn't actually having any pain when I saw him, but he just wanted to have it checked out because this pain had happened twice. He had no history of pancreatitis. He had no other clear signs of pancreatitis. His lipase was normal. It was all very misleading, misleading us away from the massive hypoechoic lesion in his abdomen. So I'm very relieved that he came in. I'm very relieved that the spring water, whether it caused a mild pancreatitis and gave him the pain, or whether it was a total red herring, that he associated with something that was wrong and came to get help. But this case reminded me of a few key issues. First off, remember to go back to the basic principles when doing ultrasound. Next time, if I'm worried about a pulsatile abdominal mass, I'll start with the aorta and won't pretend that I'm going to do right upper quadrant, left upper quadrant, suprapubic, and then aorta. Because, you know, as long as you're consistent, you're going to get the things you need to get. One thing that my colleague Katrina Gong did so well is that she went below the umbilicus and looked for the bifurcation when she couldn't see anything of the aorta further up. 
And that was a really good reminder. Try and get something to ground yourself on and then go from there. She was able to establish that it was a normal size aorta, at least somewhere near the bifurcation. And so that helped alleviate some of our anxiety that this wasn't a AAA about to burst. I mean, it was still an undifferentiated pulsatile abdominal mass, and they had to be medevaced, but definitely it provided a smidge of reassurance. Another lesson learned was being reminded of how helpful it is when communication between colleagues is cordial. The doctor in Montreal, who I called at the emergency room, went above and beyond to accept the patient and even worked to clarify to which emergency room within Montreal the patient should go to to make sure a vascular surgeon was there and ready to go in case this was a AAA. And the physician on the plane, Dr. Plould, was kind and open and helped diffuse any stress that we were feeling. And he even emailed me a few days later to follow up and see how things were going and if we had any news. The patient was really lucky to be cared for by such a great team spread out all over the province. And a final lesson. Even though this turned out to be a pancreatic pseudocyst and was probably not related, I am never drinking that spring water. Excellent case. Interesting case. Not every one of Cardi's cases result in somebody flaming out and dying on a helicopter or a plane or a boat. But this is very important to remember that not all things that are pulsatile in the abdomen are a AAA, but that is your default diagnosis. Yes, if you've got a pulsatile thing in the belly, it's AAA until proven otherwise. This is just a reminder that things sort of attached to or over the top of can then transmit that force. But that's okay, because until proven otherwise, you're going to think this is AAA. And I also will not drink spring water because I know that there's all types of poopy stuff in there. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Beavis. Feel the effects of nature. Cleanse your body. Fresh from the mountain springs, the all-natural Giardia. Taste the difference. So Swami reached out recently, told me NRAP could use a segment covering the evidence for, or I guess against, procalcitonin. Justin Morgenstern. Justin Morgenstern. Well... Swami's the godfather of emergency medicine. You definitely don't say no when he asks you for a favor. So I turned to PubMed, and my first search turned up over 10,000 articles. I'll be honest, I'm still working my way through that list. Here's the thing. Asking whether procalcitonin is useful is a lot like asking whether the white cell count is useful. It's just way too broad a question. You know, if I'm trying to diagnose leukemia or neutropenia, the white count is incredibly valuable. In most other clinical settings, it's next to useless. Context matters. The same is true when trying to sort through the procalcitonin literature. You have to be specific about what you're trying to accomplish. Are you trying to sort viral from bacterial illness? Are you trying to diagnose? Are you trying to determine how long to treat with antibiotics? That's not really an ED question, but Actually, it's where the bulk of this data is, so we'll touch on it briefly. There are a ton of different ways you could potentially use procalcitonin as a test. But let's try to keep this to a one relatively simple question. If you don't have procalcitonin available in your emergency department right now, should you be concerned? Should you be working to get it added? There are a few broad areas where people have argued that procalcitonin might help us. Patients with respiratory infections, patients with SERS criteria who might have sepsis, and young children with fevers. And basically all these scenarios are the same. We're presented with a huge number of patients who have pretty similar symptoms. And almost none of them 
have bacterial infections. They're almost all viral. But the ones who do have bacterial infections could get really sick if we miss them. So the hope here is that procalcitonin will be our savior, that it will sort bacterial from viral infections, that a single, simple blood test will take one of the most complex decisions that we make as highly trained doctors and just spit out a simple yes or no answer. So let's look at each of these scenarios, respiratory infections, sepsis, and pediatric fever. Respiratory infections. So how good is procalcitonin in distinguishing between bacterial and viral respiratory infections? There's a 2020 meta-analysis by Kamat et al., and they found that procalcitonin has a sensitivity of only 55% and a specificity of 76%. Not very good. In the studies that compared, it was really no different than CRP. It wasn't even any different than just asking whether the patient had a fever or not. And here's the kicker. In the one study that looked, procalcitonin was worse than simple clinical judgment. So not a great start, but sensitivities and specificities can sometimes be a little misleading. So luckily, we actually have RCTs to tell us whether procalcitonin is valuable. The PROACT study is an emergency department RCT that included adult patients with respiratory tract infections in whom the ED physician wasn't sure whether or not to give antibiotics. When they compared to standard care, the use of a procalcitonin algorithm changed nothing. Antibiotic prescriptions were the same, clinical outcomes were the same, nothing changed. I think the one thing the PROACT study really highlights is just how bad we are when it comes to antibiotic overprescription. Almost 80% of this study population was in the absolute lowest risk of their procalcitonin algorithm, and 90% were classified as being low risk. Only 20% overall ended up with a diagnosis of pneumonia. So how many of these patients got antibiotics? Well, 35% received them in the ED immediately, and 65% got antibiotics overall. And this is a group where the vast majority of patients had viral respiratory tract infections. We massively overuse antibiotics, but procalcitonin doesn't seem to help. There's another RCT, it's sort of unpronounceable, the BPCTREA study. It's only partially applicable to us because they were using procalcitonin both to start antibiotics, but also to guide how long the antibiotics should be given. And this is in COPD patients who were being admitted to the ICU. There was no change in antibiotic use, but for whatever reason, in this trial, mortality was actually higher in the procalcitonin group. Now, I don't think that procalcitonin increases mortality, and this is mostly an ICU study, but from an ED standpoint, there was clearly no benefit. There's an outpatient study that actually concluded that procalcitonin decreases antibiotics. This is Briel 2008. So this study looked at patients presenting to primary care offices with respiratory infections, and the paper claims to show a massive decrease in antibiotic prescriptions, from 97% in the standard care group to 25% with procalcitonin. Sounds pretty good. However, there are a couple problems with this paper. First, it is crazy that 97% of these patients were getting antibiotics at baseline. The vast majority of these patients were diagnosed with a viral illness, bronchitis, rhinosinusitis, common cold. Almost none of these patients should have been getting antibiotics. So if your control group is just very bad medicine, almost anything could improve on that. You could just have a person standing behind the doctor yelling, put down the effing prescription pad. And that would probably be just as good, if not better, than procalcitonin. But more importantly, 
this study didn't actually change prescriptions at all. Because the whole protocol here wasn't to withhold antibiotics, it was just to give a delayed antibiotic prescription. And we know that a large number of people fill these delayed antibiotic prescriptions. They don't tell us exactly how many in this study, but the average time spent on antibiotics was six days in the prokeletostonin group and seven days with standard care. So essentially, everybody in both groups took antibiotics for a week. Clearly, there is no advantage here. Finally, we have the PROHOSP study from back in 2009. This is a multi-center, non-inferiority study, again, with mixed methods, because they were using procalcitonin both to start and to stop antibiotics. In terms of clinical outcomes, procalcitonin was non-inferior to standard care, but I'm not looking to use a test just because it's non-inferior. Now, there was a slight change in the amount of antibiotics used during the patient's admission, but there was no change in the emergency department. About 92% of both groups got antibiotics in the emergency department. And once again, that seems like a pretty high number, although at least these were hospitalized patients. Now, more importantly, when you dig into the numbers, I'm not sure that all the changes with procalcitonin are actually good. If you look specifically at the patients with pneumonia, 99% received antibiotics in the standard care group. That makes sense. But only 90% received antibiotics in the procalcitonin group. I'm all for decreasing antibiotics, but do we really want to be decreasing antibiotics in patients with confirmed pneumonia? So we have four RCTs. Two are clearly negative. One claims to be positive, but just isn't. And the final one shows a possible change for inpatients, but no difference in the emergency department. For respiratory infections, we have RCT evidence saying procalcitonin does not help. Sepsis. How about sepsis? Again, let's just start with those basic accuracy numbers. For the diagnosis of sepsis based on a meta-analysis by Wacker et al., procalcitonin has a sensitivity of 77% and a specificity of 79%. That's moderately better than the numbers we saw for respiratory infections, but certainly not in the range where it can either be used to rule in or rule out. And with sepsis, we want to be pretty careful about ruling out. Once again, we don't have to just go on these sensitivity and specificity numbers. There is an RCT to guide us. The high temp trial was an RCT looking at all emergency department patients with fever. So this isn't just sepsis, but the primary reason we're concerned about fever is sepsis. And when compared to standard of care, the use of procalcitonin changes nothing. There was no change in antibiotic use, no change in any of the clinical outcomes. So just like respiratory infections, there does not seem to be a role for procalcitonin in sepsis in the emergency department. Pediatric fevers. What about pediatrics? Pediatrics is harder. I think the reason that emergency doctors have got excited again about procalcitonin is pediatrics. But the data in pediatrics is way worse than the data we've talked about so far. There are no RCTs, so nothing to tell us whether this actually helps. The data on accuracy doesn't actually look very different from the data in adults. It does depend a bit on what cutoff you use. And actually, this is one of the big problems with all of this research. The cutoffs used change from study to study. There isn't a clearly defined positive or negative. And that lets each individual study massage the numbers a little bit to get the best possible outcomes. In terms of pediatrics, the biggest study looking specifically at procalcitonin in febrile neonates was Millicent 2016. And we see a sensitivity of 74% and a specificity of 78% for serious bacterial illness 
if you use their lowest or most sensitive cutoff of 0.3 nanograms per milliliter. So this does not look any better than the adult literature. But I think we need to quickly talk about the two decision rules that include procalcitonin in the assessment of neonates. Because procalcitonin is in both the PCARN rule and the step-by-step -step tool that a lot of people are using or talking about for febrile neonates. And the problem with both of these tools is that procalcitonin wasn't studied independently. It was just mixed in with a bunch of other variables. So it's essentially impossible to tell from the data we have whether procalcitonin is actually adding anything of value in these tools. For the PCARN tool, I am almost 100% certain that procalcitonin is not adding value. Why do I say that? Well, in the other studies we've discussed so far, the cutoff for being considered low risk by procalcitonin is somewhere in the 0.1 to 0.3 nanogram per milliliter range, 0.1 to 0.3. What's the cutoff in PCARN? 1.71. Where did they come up with such a bizarre number? Nobody picks 1.71. It's obviously retrospectively overfit to their own data. And more importantly, it's completely out of line with all of the other procalcitonin literature. In their own study, the average procalcitonin in infants with serious bacterial illness was 0.7, and they picked a cutoff of 1.71. They picked a number that is way higher than the number they were actually seeing in sick kids. It just doesn't make any sense. And because of that, I'm basically 100% certain that this is going to fail on external validation. For the step-by-step -step rule, they used a much more reasonable cutoff of 0.5, but the problem is procalcitonin is just stuck in the middle of the rule. And there's no way to know whether it adds any value, and I think their data suggests that it probably doesn't. If you look at their validation cohort and you just focus on the step where procalcitonin is used, there were 18 kids who have invasive bacterial illness. How many did procalcitonin catch? Six. It only caught six and it missed 12. That does not sound like a very valuable test. And the very next step in this rule is to use CRP and neutrophil count anyway. I bet you that the six kids who had elevated procalcitonins also had elevations in their other inflammatory markers, but there's no way to know from this data. So even though that procalcitonin makes it into both of these tools, I think there is a very good chance that it is providing absolutely no value. Now, if you talk to our intensivist colleagues, there are some who are both evidence-based medicine experts and at the same time love procalcitonin. And that might be a little bit surprising based on everything we've talked about so far. But the use of procalcitonin to stop antibiotics is very different than the use to start antibiotics. They aren't really relevant to the emergency department, but there are a number of RCTs that show that procalcitonin can decrease antibiotic use in the ICU setting. Now, here's the thing. Even in the inpatient setting, I'm not convinced that procalcitonin is special. The standard care groups in these trials were receiving something like two weeks of antibiotics, but we know that you almost never need antibiotics that long. So do we really need an expensive lab test to tell us to stop? Maybe just having the antibiotic course stop automatically after seven days would be enough. Or having the EMR reminder to, to reassess antibiotics every few days. Or having a pharmacist round in the ICU. My bet is that any of those strategies would actually be at least as effective, if not more effective, than procalcitonin. But either way, 
This is all irrelevant to the emergency department. There might be a small benefit, but not in our patients, not in the decisions that we're making. Summary. So let's get back to our primary question here. Should you be worried if your department doesn't have procalcitonin? I think the answer is clearly no. This is a test with moderate test characteristics at best. It might be a bit better than white count, but not by much. And that's not a very flattering comparison. Here's the thing about tests. You can't judge them in isolation. Imagine that we had discovered ultrasound before x-ray. And then I came along and said, hey, look, I have this amazing portable chest x-ray. It's pretty good for diagnosing pneumothorax. Your first question would obviously be, hey, is this any better than the ultrasound I already have? And if it's not, why would I start using it? This is the biggest problem with the procalcitonin literature. It's almost always looked at in isolation. I only found a single study that compared procalcitonin to the current standard, which is clinical judgment. And which do you think was better? Yeah, clinical judgment is better than procalcitonin, at least in the diagnosis of pneumonia. There may be a small role for procalcitonin in inpatients, although I might still debate that. But at this point, the data is pretty clear. Procalcitonin is nowhere near accurate enough to help us make the initial decision about whether or not antibiotics are needed in the emergency department. At this point, there is no need for procalcitonin in the emergency department. All right, you ready? I am ready. All right. Brian Hayes, the babe they call Brian. For this month's Pharmacology Rounds, we're turning to a couple of questions that listeners sent in to EMRAP, and we've got our pharmacology expert, Brian Hayes, with us to answer them. Brian, thank you for coming on. It is great to be back with you, Gita. Question one. All right. So for our first question, a listener asked if we could review antibiotic treatment in C. diff infections, specifically when to use phydaxomycin. So let's chat about that and how we should think about these treatments in general for C. diff. And the, the treatments that I'm familiar with for C. diff are oral vancomycin, metronidazole, phydaxomycin, and fecal transplant or FMTs, the fecal microbiota transplants, which is usually done by a colonoscopy, but I know that there are FMT pills on the way. Yum. Oh, so gross. <laughs> but you are correct. They are in development. First, I, I do want to commend the listeners. And I think both you and I will encourage lots of listener suggestions because we do not have an infinite queue of ideas for, <laughs> for our segment. So please continue to send them in. That'd be great. And I also, I think you and I both have been in practice around the same amount of time. And we remember the days when metronidazole was like the option yeah. for C. diff treatment. I remember the days when C. diff wasn't an issue. <laughs> also true. Yeah. And then slowly it went to vancomycin. And now guidelines came out last year that are saying even, even that may not be first line for everybody. So for the first initial episode of non-severe or severe C. diff infection, fidaxomycin or oral vanc are the two options. Um, metronidazole is now relegated to second line use only if one of those first two agents are not available. Okay. So let's start with a little update on fidaxomycin. What is fidaxomycin? 
And what should we know about it? It's actually in the macrolide class. So it's a little bit similar to azithromycin that we use all the time (laughs) and even erythromycin, which we use a little less often. And so what it does, it inhibits RNA polymerase, which inhibits protein synthesis and leads to cell death. It's bactericidal. And when it's taken orally, very small amounts are absorbed systemically. So it largely stays in the GI tract, similar to oral vancomycin. Is there any other use for fidaxomycin or is it just C. diff? Not at this time. Okay. So, and where in the lineup of C. diff treatments should it be? So you were saying, should we think of it really as first line, like oral vanco, like reach for it first? I do. The guidelines support that also. And I looked at a lot of the studies because you know when the guidelines recommend something new, it sometimes is like, is this really the, the right thing? Mm. Is the data supporting this or is it mostly manufacturer-related data? But there's been enough trials now outside of just the ones from that got it approved that do show that it compares favorably to vancomycin. So I think at this point, the evidence supports fidaxomycin over oral vanc in most cases, including recurrent infections, which we'll talk a little bit about in a, in a minute. Okay. So how do we dose fidaxomycin and how much does it cost? Yeah, so fidaxomycin is 200 milligrams twice daily, so it's pretty easy. Actually, easier to take than vancomycin, which is four times daily. And you and I both know that we personally can't take anything four times a day, so asking <laughs> no. our patients to do that is, is not nice. No. So twice a day is much better. It is about $250 per dose, which mm. is a lot compared to vancomycin, which is about $30 a dose, although that's four times daily. So we're talking about, you know, quite a difference in cost between those two medications. And vanc also, they make uh, capsules, but you also, for a cheaper option, and what we used to do when vanc first became the thing, was that we used the vanc oral solution, which is a lot cheaper, tastes horrible, but it's a lot, I guess it's better than fecal pills. But Anyway, it, <laughs> it tastes awful, but it's much cheaper. You do wonder about the aftertaste on the aftertaste, <laughs> right? <Ooh. laughs> yes, I do actually wonder that. So maybe we'll look for that in the side effect <laughs> profile <laughs> when that comes out. So fidaxomycin is a lot more expensive, but at this point, since they are both first line recommended by the guidelines, most insurances should cover them. Some of them may need a, you know, a prior authorization or whatnot, but they should be able to get covered at a hopefully affordable cost for most patients. Okay. And the starting length of treatment is? Uh, 10 days for the first episode, whether it's severe or non-severe. Okay. All right. So you would advocate updating our algorithm of how we should think about the treatments overall. Yeah. I think I kind of have this in parallel to my thinking about the treatment of a lot of our sexually transmitted infections where you know, that we used to use 125 milligrams of ceftriaxone, then it went to 250, and then it went to 500 because the resistance just keeps growing. This is kind of similar. So we went from metronidazole to vancomycin, now to vanc or fidaxomycin. I'm choosing fidaxomycin first in most cases. Unless someone is paying out of pocket and cost is a consideration, sure. then it might Absolutely. be. Absolutely. And in that case, yep. you know, you can evaluate the vanc, or that might be a case where you might consider metronidazole if they, if they really have no other option. Okay. And if they then return with treatment failure, our next move would be to move to oral vanco or fidaxomites if we started the other way around. We just, we just pick the next agent. And then do we treat longer for a recurrence? Yeah, that's a good question. And a lot of the things that we treat in ED, that's how we do approach it. So you kind of like failed one thing and then, you know, so we're going to try something different. So if it's a treatment failure, 
then yes, you might consider moving to the other agent. But if it's a re- just a recurrent infection, and the guidelines kind of talk about how to differentiate between those two things, then you could actually just choose the same one that you did the first time, and the duration may be a little bit longer. And so for fidaxomycin, uh, recurrent infection, there's a you could do a 10-day course again, um, but there's a couple of other options up to a 20-day course. And VANC is interesting because its initial course is 10 days also. But for recurrent infections, particularly if they're like recurrent, recurrent, you can actually do a couple of different regimens, one of them, which is eight weeks long and includes this like tapering and, and pulse where you're just taking a couple days a week. So yeah, it can be anywhere from 10 days up to eight weeks, depending on, on the drug you choose and when what your approach is. Okay. All right. Thanks for that. So fidaxomycin first, oral vanco close second, or maybe tied depending on cost, metronidazole a far away third. Think about length versus changing agent when someone comes back with a recurrence and we're all waiting for the fecal pills. Yeah, that great summary. I like it. <laughs> question two. All right. So let's move on to the second listener question this month. This is not at all related to C. diff. This one was about the five classes of cephalosporins. And they were wondering if you could review for us how to think about these in terms of which class to use when. And I will readily admit, if someone asked me that question, I would be like, uh, well, I can name you a drug from most of the categories and when I use that drug, and that's all I can do for you. That's a good start. <laughs> and my approach to answering this question, because it's a, it's a great one, but it's also really comprehensive, depending on how in detail you want to get. So w- the way that we're going to do this today is hopefully focus on ED-specific sort of like take-home pearls rather than just give out a ton of information on, on these drugs. Okay. There are actually books written about cephalosporin, so we're, we're not <laughs> going to get too far into the weeds here. So okay. the way I want to think about this is in the different generations. And then as we go through that, I'll name the ones that are most relevant to our, our care in the ED. And then we'll kind of talk about how we use them in practice and kind of some pearls to help you along the way. So the first generation are things like cefazolin, which is IV, cephalexin, which is kind of the oral equivalent, and then cefadroxyl. And these are largely active against gram-positive bugs. So these are drugs we think of when we're going to treat a strep skin and soft tissue infection, something like that. I think most of us are pretty familiar with those drugs. We tend to use them a lot. So, okay, we've got those. How about the second generation? I like the second generation, and I'm going to put a plug in for one of these in a second. Some of the examples of these that you may be familiar with are cefuroxime, cefaclor, which is an old, old one, and cefprozil. And when you add these on, you, you get the same coverage as you do for the first generation, but now you're adding a little bit of more gram-negative coverage, specifically against haemophilus influenza, which may be important um, in treating things like pneumonias, which is great because cefuroxime, for me, is one of my favorite cephalosporins because it's so versatile and can treat anything from skin and soft tissue all the way to pneumonia. So I like this class. Mm. They're relatively cheap and affordable. They're all generic. And then there's a couple sub in a subclass of the second generation, cefotitan and cefoxetin, which we use a little bit. And those add coverage against bacteroides, which is good because that's anaerobic coverage. In fact, up until a couple of years ago, cefoxetin was a great drug for mild to moderate intra-abdominal infections if a patient came into the ED. You didn't have to jump right to something like a zosin. You could start with this. But unfortunately, a lot of the bacteroides species now are, are resistant. And so we're really not using that as a first-line agent anymore. That's too bad. Okay, third generation. 
this is my favorite only because it contains my favorite antibiotic. So when people ask, you know, Wait, like, like hey, can I guess which, what is your, is, is I think you're, you're probably going to know. Yeah. You, <laughs> 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 I don't hide my feelings very well when it comes to my favorite antibiotic. <laughs> It's just so great. So ceftriaxone is my favorite, but it also has ceftazidime, ceftonir, cefixime, and cefpodoxime, which is also great because that's kind of like the oral equivalent of ceftriaxone. And this category broadens the gram-negative coverage even further, and it covers most of the common gram-negatives that we would run into, except for pseudomonas. The only exception to this is the ceftazidime, which does have some coverage against pseudomonas, but ceftriaxone does not. All right. So then fourth generation comes along and we are looking at you, Pseudomonas. Yes, we are totally looking at Pseudomonas. So this is Cefepime. This is our workhorse of the fourth generation. And it is kind of like Ceftriaxone, except now you have Pseudomonas coverage. The one difference between Cefepime and Ceftriaxone that I will mention, just because we use them both so often, is that Ceftriaxone does not need to be dose-adjusted if there is renal dysfunction, whereas Cefepime may need to be adjusted if there's renal dysfunction. Not the first dose, but subsequent doses. Now this fifth generation, I'll say this is not a class that I recall using much. So tell me about them. Yeah, we are also in my ED are not using these, except in rare circumstances where someone comes in with a really, you know, tough resistance history and we're out of other options. So these are things like ceftaroline that you've heard of. There is one that mixes ceftolazine with tazobactam, which is one of the same thing that's that's in Zosin. Mm-hmm. And the brand name for that one is Zabaxa. And then the one that you may have also heard of, just because you probably see commercials on TV for these because they're still, you know, brand name only, are Ceftazidime Avabactam, and that's Abicaz. And what's interesting about the fifth generation is that they also add coverage for MRSA. So there's not too many drugs on the market outside of actually there's none outside the fifth generation cephalosporins that would cover um, Pseudomonas and, and MRSA, but it's kind of nice because there's not other cephalosporins that cover MRSA. So this is a category that you could consider if you're trying to approach something like that. And which of those are oral versus IV? They're all IV. They're all IV. There's no yeah. orals. Nope, no orals. Okay, good to know. Fourth and fifth generation are all parenteral at this point. Okay. Recap. So it sounds like we can think of the first generation as our starting point and then everything else is that plus something. So second generation is first gen plus H flu or bacteroides. Third generation is first gen plus some gram negatives, except maybe pseudomonas for most of them. Fourth generation adds pseudomonas and fifth adds MRSA. Yeah, is that right? Yeah. Yep, that's a good summary. Okay, all right. See, now you don't have to read the book. <laughs> Thank Cliff God. notes version. Thank God for that. <laughs> all right, so can we settle another cephalosporin-related issue? Can we talk about cross-reactivity between cephalosporin allergy and penicillin allergy, because I thought that maybe this had been debunked, that there was like less, there was not any more cross-reactivity than other antibiotics, but maybe that's not entirely true. So tell us about that. Yeah, this is another thing that over the course of both of our careers, we've seen go from one extreme to the other, which is nice. And the bottom line here is that there is very little, if any, cross-reactivity with most penicillins and cephalosporins. The ones that I'll, and I've talked about this in other spots, so we don't have to necessarily get into the the weeds here, but we used to think that the allergy was based on the similarities between the beta-lactam rings that make up the structures of penicillins and cephalosporins, but it turns out that it's not that, and it only is a real problem if a a specific penicillin, 
like amoxicillin were to have a side chain. So now we're getting back into like chemistry 101 or 201 maybe. (laughs) But if there's penicillin and a cephalosporin that have the same side chain and you have a reaction to one of those, then you shouldn't have one from the other class that has the same side chain. And the other kind of thing I'd like to debunk here while we have the opportunity is we all learned in our pharmacy and med schools that the cross-reactivity was highest with the first generation cephalosporins and Mm -hmm. then kind of decreased as you went up the generation categories. And while that is true, it isn't true for the reasons we learned. It actually has nothing to do with the generations themselves. It just has to do with the fact that that side chain issue we just talked about only exists with first and second generation cephalosporins. Once you get beyond that, there's no side chain similarities between any penicillins and cephalosporins. So that's why the majority of the quote-unquote cross-reactivity is between penicillins on the first and second generations. But even with those first two generations, the cross-reactivity is not that 10% that we learned back in the day. Absolutely not. Yeah, much, much lower. All right. So any other cephalosporin pearls for us, since it's your favorite class of drugs, um, before, <laughs> before we go? Yeah, I have three that I want to share with the group, with okay. the audience here, um, that I hopefully will be really helpful. Tip one. So cefpodoxim, as we mentioned earlier, is, is essentially the oral equivalent of ceftriaxone. However, and this is the however is why I prefer cefuroxime over cefpodoxime in a lot of circumstances. And that is because not all pharmacies carry it. And even though it's pretty old, not all insurances cover it, even though it's available generically. So <laughs> cefpodoxime for some patients may still be pretty expensive. And I, I don't want that to happen. So the reason I like cefuroxime so much here is because if you're talking about CAP or UTI or SSTI, kind of whatever you're doing, it can be used. And it's twice a day, so you don't have to worry about the adherence issues with things like cephalexin. All right, that's a good tip. Tip two. All right, tip number two, back to cephalexin. If you're using cephalexin, which is totally fine, particularly for skin and soft tissue infections, I know that we normally will dose it 500 milligrams four times daily. And as we mentioned earlier, that is impossible for patients to do. Mm-hmm. If you go back and look at the old data on cephalexin, there actually is some that supports using 1,000 milligrams twice a day in place of the 500 four times a day. So I encourage that. If you have a patient where you're really worried that there's no way they're going to be taken four times a day, try the 1,000 twice a day, and that may be the answer for some of your patients. Okay. Another good tip. Tip three. And the last one, going back, I I had to end this with my favorite. (laughs) So ceftriaxone is a once daily drug for almost every indication that is not central nervous system related. Most patients can get one gram, but there's two particular subgroups of patients that I will go with two grams, even if it is a non-CNS infection. And that is that if they are over hundred kilos or if they're critically ill, if it's those cases, even if I'm giving it just once a day, I'm going to increase my dose from one gram to two grams to make sure that we cover that, that bug and that we can kill it early. All right. Hooray for the ceftriaxone. Hooray! Ryan, thank you so much. <laughs> that wraps it up for today. And as always, thank you for coming on to share your expertise. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. On the planet Cephalospore, he was no one. Thanks, Mr. Triaxone. Please, call me Ceph. Until one day. Attention, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Graham Negative. Now he must save his planet. Okay, hold on. To what? And the galaxy. 
the adventures of Seth Triaxone. In theaters and 5DX this fall. Pediatric Pearls. I'm here with Patrick Walsh. He is a graduating PEM fellow. In fact, I should probably just say graduated because it's coming up any moment at Cincinnati Children's. And he did an interesting study on Bell's palsy, which I have to say I loved because the first time I saw a kid with Bell's palsy, my response was, can a kid have Bell's palsy? But it turns out that you found over 12,000 kids under 17, all the way down to six months, who had a diagnosis of Bell's palsy. So we found over 12,000 cases of Bell's palsy diagnosed in emergency departments across the country in over 50 hospitals that make up the Pediatric Health Information System database. Bell's palsy is slightly less common in children than in adults. Estimates have ranged from six to 18 cases per 100,000 person years and less common in kids under the age of 10. Practically, what that meant in our case is that in our data set, most hospitals had between 20 and 50 cases per year that they found with kids with Bell's palsy. When you say Bell's palsy, I think a lot of us think of that as synonymous with a facial palsy, but Bell's palsy technically is an idiopathic facial palsy. So there are a lot of other reasons why you could have a facial palsy that you actually identify the reason for. Is the differential different in kids? What are the things you're thinking of before you say, eh? I guess it's just Bell's palsy. First thing you have to do is a good physical exam and evaluate whether the forehead is involved and whether the eye can be open and closed easily because you want to make sure you're dealing with a peripheral facial nerve palsy and not a central palsy. Once you've done that, you also want to make sure there's no other neurologic deficit that would point you towards something else like a stroke or other central process. Once you're confident you have an isolated peripheral facial palsy, it's important to consider acute otitis media in children as a potential source, so a good ear exam is important. Additionally, you want to evaluate for history or signs of trauma, as that might point you in a different direction and indicate imaging. Other etiologies would be an activation of HSV or varicella zoster, and it's actually thought that a lot of idiopathic bells is really HSV. And finally, you need to consider the patient's risk of Lyme disease. If you're in an endemic area for Lyme and it's the right time of year, the patient has a high likelihood of having Lyme as the underlying cause, and so you'd want to treat that. For our study, in addition to all these well-known causes, we wanted to know, should we be worried about malignancy in children who present with facial palsy? That was actually my first thought when I saw a tiny baby with bells, could this child have cancer? So how worried should I be? How often did you find cancer? And did you tend to find it more in younger children? Overall, we found a rate of 0.3% of a new diagnosis of cancer after the first ED visit with the diagnosis of Bell's palsy. The rate was a little bit higher in kids under five. It was about 0.7% in those kids and a little bit lower in older kids. We compare this to a control cohort of kids with a diagnosis of cough in the ED, and it was an 11 times greater risk of a subsequent diagnosis of malignancy in the Bell's palsy cohort. How does this impact your practice? If you have a kid who's under five with a Bell's palsy, do you find yourself directing different follow-up? Do you find yourself getting imaging? Do you find yourself just doing a really careful history and physical? Yeah, just like you said, the risk that we found was low. The risk is less than 1%, but yes, in the younger kids, it has made me at least think more carefully. So do a very careful exam, and I think you hit it, think the follow-up is extremely important. So if you have a child who you believe has Bell's palsy, what is the state of the literature on giving things like steroids 
and or a cyclovir that we might consider in an adult. And do you check a CBC or do you withhold the steroids because of this possibility of something like leukemia? Yeah, that's a good question. In children, like with many other diseases, for Bell's palsy, there are not great high quality randomized control trials to give us quality evidence one way or the other. The use of steroids can be a bit provider dependent as the evidence is not quite as strong. There is one ongoing study in Australia and New Zealand, and actually they reported in a case series in Annals of Emergency Medicine, a series of five out of 644 patients they were enrolling who they found to have leukemia. And that inspired us to do our study. You know you need some more evidence when Annals is publishing a case series of five patients, right? You know, there's not a lot out there. But based on our results, I would say that the finding of malignancy after a diagnosis of Bell's palsy was rare, and we ended up finding brain tumors as more than half of the cases. We found some cases of leukemia and lymphoma. This is really interesting, and it's something good to consider because I cannot remember the last time that I checked a kid with Bell's palsy for hepatosplenomegaly and lymphadenopathy and all that kind of stuff that you would look for to point you in the direction of a leukemia diagnosis. Can we talk about the other causes of facial palsy for a second that are a little less idiopathic? Lyme disease, for example, how is that treated in children? I know that we used to really shy away from doxy because of the risk of tooth discoloration, but it seems like that isn't quite as big of a risk as we thought. And obviously Lyme disease is no picnic either. So what do you do if you think that it might be due to Lyme disease? If you're concerned it might be due to Lyme disease, which you should be if you're in a Lyme endemic area, the treatment is doxycycline. While for certain mild Lyme, you can use doxy or consider amoxicillin. For neurologic Lyme disease, doxycycline is the treatment of choice. The pediatric dose be 4.4 milligrams per kilo per day, orally divided twice daily. And then once you get to being an adult size, it maxes out as 100 milligrams per dose twice a day for 14 to 21 days. What if you see evidence of Ramsey Hunt? What if you do your ear exam and you see some herpetic appearing vesicles in the auditory canal? Does that change what you do? In that case, that would certainly indicate treatment with steroids and valacyclovir. And in this setting, the dose of steroids is one milligram per kilo per day, and the acyclovir dose is 80 milligrams per kilo per day for seven to 10 days. In the case of Ramsey Hunt, recovery is 90% if both are used compared with 62% if steroids are used. So a lot of medication for a small child, but still reasonably important. And what if you look in that ear and you see a really dense effusion and very obvious otitis media? So when you see an otitis media, of course, they're going to need treatment with antibiotics, so high-dose amoxicillin. But you also want to be careful that it is simply an otitis media and there's no more invasive disease. So a careful examination of the mastoid bone and looking for things like ear proptosis. I personally have only seen a facial nerve palsy in this setting from mastoiditis. Would not want to miss that. Both for mastoiditis and if you're concerned there's a chronic infection, you may want to consider getting cross-sectional imaging. I know when I was at Children's, these patients underwent meringotomy as well just to get any of that pressure off the nerve. There's definitely a few case series of this being a potentially effective intervention, but obviously not a very common situation. So if you're lucky, it's going to be mastoiditis and you're going to be calling your ENT anyway. But even if there's no mastoiditis, I consult ENT hoping that maybe they're going to do some trephining of the tympanic membrane for me. That certainly seems reasonable. Like you said, we see otitis media many times every shift and for it to lead to a facial nerve palsy, it's certainly more severe than your typical garden variety acute otitis media. Summary. 
So what's the take-home message after spending so much time sort of entrenched in facial palsy? What's the take-home message you want for listeners to have? Just like in adults, a facial nerve palsy in a child is an extremely terror-inducing thing for a parent to see. I mean, you want to make sure you're doing a careful history and physical exam, considering all potential diagnoses. If you've done that, you can feel safe that you're diagnosing a Bell's palsy, making sure careful follow-up is in place in case there's any further findings presenting, and to make sure that the patient is recovering as expected. All right, people of the rep, it's time for a case. This is a real case with a real patient. I've got the real patient in front of me. We're gonna run this as a case. You're gonna think of the differential diagnosis as you go. This person is Wendy Roderweiss. You know her as a producer at MRAP. She's been on the show before because she's got something wrong with her. <laughs> yes, I produce MRAP. I am also a filmmaker, which is pertinent to the story. And I am what Mel likes to call an interesting patient. Never be an interesting patient. <laughs> Wendy has managed to be an interesting patient a number of times. So, Wendy, tell us the story. And again, as you're listening to this, think about what the patient has. What's the differential diagnosis? It's kind of a toughie. Here's the story. This is back in September, and it was my birthday. Yay for me. (laughs) So I had my whole day planned out, and it was going to be kind of a special day. I had not one, but two of my films were playing in online virtual festivals. And I was doing Q&As. Thank you. Thank you. And my kids were at my parents' house. So I had the house to myself. And my husband had surprised me that morning with the good bagels. There's this woman in my town who makes them and they're amazing. I live in Chicago. We don't have the best bagels, but these are like East Coast quality bagels. Now, I know we're going to get like a Dear MRAP thing here. Dear MRAP, everybody knows the best bagels are from New York. (laughs) There's a big debate between Josh and Swami about who has the best bagels, whether it's New York or New Jersey. And if anybody tells you otherwise, especially if they're from New Jersey, they don't know what they're talking about. But these are like that good. They're like really good. So I'm eating my bagel. Life is grand. And then I get a headache. This is, you know, where Bill starts the music, right? So I'm getting a headache, and it feels kind of like a sinus headache. It's, it's across my forehead, behind my eyebrows, and I'm just like, this is weird. You know, it's fall, seasons are changing. I don't really have allergies, but I'm thinking, I'll just take a Tylenol. Hopefully it'll go away. A little acetaminophen, no problem. So I take one, and it's not getting better. It's getting worse. So I say to my husband, you know, I think I'm gonna just go lie down. And I start to get photophobia. So bright lights bothering me. I'm closing Mm -hmm. the curtains, I'm lying down, not feeling good. I do have a history of migraines, but they're very different. And I get them like once every four or five years. So not common, but very classic. I get the aura. This is not that, this is very different. So I'm lying down and I am, you know, just trying to to make my way through this. I'm supposed to get up to do like a virtual red carpet for this film festival and I can't get out of bed. I just feel awful. So I stay in bed for that and then I have a Q&A. I get out of bed and I'm waiting for it to start and I'm literally like putting sunglasses on in between at nighttime. <laughs> so I get through the first one, just feeling awful, laying down in between, feeling really kind of queasy. 
And then I get up, I do the second one, and I'm like, I gotta go to bed. This is just awful. So I wake up the next morning and my head feels pretty okay. And so I get up and I'm walking around and 10 minutes later, boom, there's the headache again. Just exact same place, feeling terrible. So this is Labor Day weekend and I can't get hold of my doctor because it's the weekend. And so Sunday comes, same thing, just, you know, feeling terrible. Monday, feeling terrible. So now I'm starting to get a little bit worried. Now, what do I usually do when I get worried? You call me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it happened to be the week of the PEDS conference. So you were totally swamped. And so I, of course, decided to reach out to Swami on the ER side and Vanessa and Heidi on the primary care side to get their take on this since they see a lot of headache. Yes. Excellent choice in physicians. So I reach out to both of them through messaging and just kind of tell them what's going on. And they're getting a little worried. It's now been several days and they start asking me some questions. So Mel, if I had gotten a hold of you, what would be the questions? Uh, well, what meds and stuff are you on first of a past medical history? Let's clear that up for the audience. So I am on five milligrams of amlodipine for mild hypertension and an oral contraceptive. Okay. So no significant past medical history, no cancer, nothing else bad. You've got a history of migraines. There's no tricks here. There's nothing else going on. So this is concerning. Uh, this is a headache that is significantly different from your prior headaches. And it sounds like it is basically debilitating that you can't get out of bed or once you get out of bed, it starts to hurt after a little while and you have photophobia. So my first thought was, oh, shit, you've got meningitis. It's probably just going to be viral meningitis, but that's not good. But there's something about this that is very anxiety producing, but also a bit more chronic. Usually with meningitis, you'd get worse. If you had bacterial meningitis, you'd probably be dead by now. There's features to this headache which are a little weird. So tell us again, what makes it better? What makes it worse? So the key thing is that it is postural. So when I am upright, sitting or standing, it is terrible. And when I lie down, it gets much better. By day three, the photophobia had gotten better. At that point, it wasn't as significant as it was the first day. But that really, that lying down is what's giving me relief. And you haven't had an LP. No. Like, so nobody snuck up on you and gave you an LP because this is a very classic presentation for a post-LP headache. It's worse when you stand up. It's better when you lie down. It's a low-pressure headache. Correct. Yes. No one has jabbed me in the spine without me knowing. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So here's what I do at this point, which is what I tell uh, Wendy most of the time. Go to the ER and see a real doctor. <laughs> so do that. Okay. So the next part of the story is, you know, I am, you know, I'm kind of just... Having not gone to the ER yet, I'm alternating acetaminophen and ibuprofen. I've switched to taking some allergy meds that I have, thinking, okay, if this really is a sinus headache, because that's what it feels like. It's in that, you know, that range. Nothing is helping. And, you know, again, I'm nauseated, not vomiting. So that's a big thing. And I definitely have no appetite. But it's now got five days. So just like you say, Vanessa and Swami are like, go to the ER. <laughs> yeah, go to the ER. So for those residents listening, you know, classically sinus pain, if you've got sinuses full of pus and stuff, when you bend down, that's when it's worse. It feels like your head's going to explode and sitting up makes it better. You have the exact opposite of that. Right. 
And I also have no other symptoms of allergies. Like I don't have a runny nose. I don't have anything else going on. So I go to the ER. Of course, we have to address the elephant in the room. It is during COVID. So, you know, I've got some big fears about going into the ER. You know, there's also the possibility of some weird offshoot of COVID. So I'm going to go to the ER. That's one big fear. But honestly, the other big fear I have of going to the ER is that I need to lie down. Like, this is so horrible. Like, I cannot be upright for more than, like, five minutes. And so I just, the thought of, like, sitting in the waiting room for hours is just terrifying to me. But I go. So I have a nurse check me in and pretty quickly get to see a triage doc, which is the structure that they had at this ER. So Mel, how's that going to go with the triage doc in the ER? They're going to do all the same things that we asked. And then they're probably going to freak out a little bit and want to get you back there and scan you and tap you. That's what I'd want to do. It's like, I don't know what the hell's going on here. Could this be a presentation of meningitis? So I'd give you a stick in an IV and give you some fluids and make you feel better get a CT scan, and then I'd probably be planning on tapping you personally. They did do a neuro exam. Oh, yeah, I'd do that. Yeah, I'd do that. <laughs> I think they were a little afraid maybe this was possible stroke, maybe something else happening. So they did the neuro exam. Of course, it was fine. I have no weakness, no other issues with that. Put me back in the waiting room for a while, and then I finally get into a bed. They thankfully turn off the lights. I get to lie down. I'm in my happy place of lying down. And I see a really lovely PA who happens to be an MRAP fan, which is always nice. I always joke that, you know, it's kind of a blessing and a curse when you tell them that you're the producer of MRAP, because on the one hand, like you get amazing care. But on the other hand, they're going to do freaking everything because they don't (laughs) want to mess up and be like a case on MRAP that they messed up, right? So they're wonderful and they're taking care of me. Going back to what they would do. I'd make the patient feel better. I'd give them some fluids. I'd give them something for the pain. We can't help ourselves. We'll do CBCs and basic metabolic panels and stuff. But if your neurological exam is normal, then I really do want to scan you to make sure that there's not something bizarre in there. I'm not exactly sure what I'm looking for, but could this be a bizarre presentation of a subarachnoid hemorrhage or something like that? And then I want to tap you and see if there is any cells in there in particular. And of course, I'd do a COVID test because COVID can produce everything, particularly when you were presenting where you still didn't really know exactly what the hell's going on. But COVID can produce anything. So I wouldn't be surprised at the end of this story is that you had COVID and this was just another bizarre presentation. Yeah. So uh, they did give me migraine cocktail to start out, Ketorolac twice, Reglan and Benadryl, which did help with the symptoms. But again, I was lying down. They did do the basic metabolic panel, the CBC with differential, and then they did do the CT brain without IV contrast and a COVID test. They did not do the tap. They looked at the results. I don't know if you want to summarize. So basically all your results are negative. So CBC is fine. Basic metabolic panel is fine. CT scan shows you have no brain. No. Yeah, your brain is fine. There's nothing there. And the COVID test was? Negative. They discharged me with scripts basically saying that I have a sinus headache, Flonase, ibuprofen, and my favorite drug of all time, Ondansetron. Ondansetron. That's the best name to begin with. It just like reminds me of like awesome like 90s new wave music. It's just incredible. But uh, (laughs) it was such a help for me in terms of dealing with the queasiness and the nausea that was really persistent throughout this. Yeah. So let's talk about that diagnosis. It really doesn't seem like it is allergies. It really doesn't seem like it's a a sinus-like headache. It doesn't really fit at all. 
we are uh, Vanessa, Swami, me, we're in the position where we know you. So you're not a wimp. If you are lying down and you can't stand up, there's something seriously wrong here. This is not who you are. It's a little harder to do an assessment like that when you just don't know. You're, you could be just a crazy person who's being a wimp. But I think the key thing when you have a patient like this is to say, I don't know what's going on. Say it to yourself, say it to the patient. There's something going on here. I'm not quite smart enough to work it out or the disease hasn't progressed far enough for us to work out what's going on. So let's do this plan, come back if things get worse, arrange some follow-up, because it's clear that it's not clear. So I go home, and I am being a good patient. I am doing all of the allergy stuff, but this is just not sitting right with me. I'm just like, this isn't, I don't have any other symptoms. This feels different. And it's really bugging Vanessa. She is not liking this diagnosis. (laughs) So her first thought is potentially that there is some sort of blood pressure dysregulation that is coming from my amlodipine. Yeah, so Vanessa looked this up, and yes, you can have uh, dysregulation syndromes, and any drug like amlodipine or anything can cause orthostatic hypotension, and that may be a part of the differential diagnosis. So you're standing up and you're walking around and your blood pressure is going down and down and down and down, and one of the ways your body is telling you to lie down (laughs) to get your blood pressure up is giving you a headache. So that certainly could be that. That's an easy thing to check, though. Did they do standing and sitting blood pressures, or did you do that? They did not. Thankfully, I had a home BP kit, and so Vanessa's like, do that now. So I did, and there was no difference between my blood pressure, whether I was standing or lying down or sitting. So it seemed like that was not the case. So you do repeat that a couple of times and do it when you've been walking around for a bit. And Okay, so if that's not it, what happens next? Now my symptoms start to change. Definitely still the postural headache, big, big time there, nausea, anorexia, all that stuff. But now I'm getting pain between my shoulder blades and like the weirdest freaking thing ever, which is phonophobia. And it manifests in the strangest way. So any kind of low frequency or mid frequency sounds are like turned up to 11, no matter what they are. It's just unbearable. I'd be sitting in my room with my windows closed and a car would drive by outside and I would cover my ears with my hands because it was like so loud. And then like higher frequencies were kind of muffled. So it was, everything was just sounding really, really strange. And this was of course like horrible because I'm like laying down, I'm stuck, I can't work, I can't do anything. So I at least was able to like watch stuff. But now the sound is so bad that it's like painful. So I ended up started watching old movies that have a compressed frequency range. Such a filmmaker. I know, right? I could do a whole lecture on why that is, but I won't. So I'm watching like The Apartment and like all these old movies because I can like bear it because that's how bad it is. And then over the next couple of days, it starts to change even more and sound starts to get really distorted. My four-year-old was talking to me and it sounded for all the world like it was the X-Wing fight in Star Wars against the Death Star, like the sort of mechanical sound of the the voices over the radio was how everybody sounded to me. Like it was like robot land. And I was like, this is just awful. And that did not go away when I laid down, unfortunately. So it was, it's just a very, very strange experience. And it was really like, okay, what's going on? This is a whole new set of symptoms. So that's kind of where we got. So now what happens? Vanessa's really bothered by all this. (laughs) 
So she finds a paper, Annals of Emergency Medicine 2017. It's called Postural Headache. It's not a tumor. And it is written by Andrew Grock, Jessica Mason, and Stuart Swadron. You might have heard of those people. (laughs) (laughs) You talked to the wrong MRAC doctors. You should have talked to Jess and Swad. So she reads this paper. She sends it to me. And I'm reading this thing. And I'm like, oh, my God. This is me. This is 100% what I have. So, Mel, what do I have? So you have a low-pressure headache, and it's a spontaneous idiopathic intracranial hypotension, or S-I-I-H. Do not be an interesting patient. So I joked at the beginning, had anybody actually done an LP on you? Because that's exactly how you were presenting. But you're presenting as somebody who has an LP, who has a chronic dural leak. The dura has got a hole in it. The CSF is leaking out. You have a low-pressure headache, and you feel better when you lie down. So this is really classic for getting an LP, but you didn't have an LP. And it turns out this can occur spontaneously. And because you're an interesting patient, you got one of these puppies. And so sometimes they find the cause. Sometimes it's like a, you've got a little bony thing and you actually gave yourself a dural tour. You gave yourself an LP. So it is a really fascinating disease and it can occur with sneezing. It can occur just with movement. It just goes spontaneously. So there's not necessarily an inciting event that you did, like somebody punched you on the back of the head and gave you a dural tear or something. But all of those things that, that you said is exactly the presentation. Better when you lie down. It's worse when you sit up and you can get other sensory distortions, just like you can with migraine. Like a lot of migraine sufferers can't stand the sound. When you started to talk about your back pain, I'm like, oh, shit, she's dissecting something. <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> so that's what you've got. And the treatment, if it doesn't go away, step one of treatment is lie down a lot and hope it just spontaneously resolves. And then if that doesn't work, it's a blood patch. So what was your, how did you progress? You know, it was, it basically had been three weeks at this point. You know, usually these things clear up by about four weeks. So it was like, do I get the blood patch? Do I not? I still haven't gotten confirmation that that, this is what it is, but we're all pretty sure. So I just decided to wait it out. And after four weeks, my symptoms go away and I return to normal. But that's not the end of the story. (laughs) Of course, no, no. That would be boring. Right? We got to have some closure. We got to wrap this up. (laughs) A month goes by. I'm feeling great. I mean, I'm feeling really great because I like thought I was dying. And so (laughs) now that I have like a new new outlook on life, I'm walking through my house and I am carrying a box and I trip, trip over a toy. And I fly forward and I bounce off of one wall and then bounce backwards off of another wall. I don't ever hit the ground, but there's this sort of whiplash kind of movement. And the ironic thing, is it ironic? I don't know, Josh will tell me. It's not. Was that it was actually a box of MRAP swag that I had, <laughs> that I was carrying. So this happens and two days later, boom, headache is back. So now I'm profoundly depressed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And also know I cannot wait another month to go through this Mm because it's that debilitating. I get super proactive about trying to find somewhere that I can either get the diagnosis or just get the blood patch. Just somebody who will listen to me and look at all the evidence and go, yeah, you have this. Let's just do the blood patch. So I do find a doctor to do this. I go to a spine center and he, of course, looks at me and is like, you got to go get an MRI of your lumbar because I'm not going to just poke a hole in you not knowing where I'm going here because you haven't had an LP this is real weird you know I want to make sure there's no structural issues going on here so I get that he looks at it it all looks normal and he does the blood patch now I get 
pretty quick relief with the blood patch, which again, it's backing up this idea that this is what I have. It is not 100% though, but it's definitely keeping me more functional. I can be upright a lot longer. It really fought off all of the phonophobia and all the other big symptoms that came with it. So definitely helped. And then it was like, okay, I gotta get into a neurologist. So there is a CSF leak center in Chicago at Northwestern. I get a hold of them. I don't know if we should make neurology jokes, but of course they can't see me for like two months. <laughs> <laughs> Great. There's a lot of CSF leaking occurring apparently. So I was like, okay, fine, I'll just get in the queue. By the time I've seen them, it's been more than four weeks. My symptoms have totally resolved, but they confirm 100% that I had the CSF leak. Yeah, so the smart neurologist look at it and it says, dural enhancement on the brain MRI indicating lower pressure in the head and bright white signaling in the spine indicating fluid in the anterior, in the upper thoracic and lower cervical spine images. No structural abnormalities. The good news is that they didn't see anything. They didn't see like a bony spur or something sticking out to cause it. And so when I asked, why did this happen again? <laughs> they think that the second occurrence was actually an extension of the first that would ever mm -hmm. cause the issue. It just hadn't healed. And then that tripping and sort of whiplash motion just sprung a tiny little leak again. And that's what caused the problem. They don't think that this is going to be a common occurrence. <laughs> they are very, very rare, as you said. And, and I think that was the interesting thing. And the reason that we wanted to do this case is that when Vanessa found this paper and we all sort of talked about it, everybody's like, you can't get those spontaneously. <laughs> <laughs> And you can. And I will say that everybody I've talked to since then in the medical field is like, wait, what? You what? What did happen? How did this happen? So it's definitely something that we wanted to put out there because it does happen and it sucks. Yeah. And I think this will be really helpful because it's very rare, but you know, we have lots of subscribers. You're, somebody out there is going to see this. And now instead of like us going, I wonder what that is, it'll be like, oh, I know what that is. And even though Jess and, and Andy Grok and Swad published that paper. It was a couple of years ago and it's probably out of my brain. I read that paper and I wouldn't have made this diagnosis. I just was like, hmm, something's wrong. The way to make this diagnosis is to listen to the patient, believe the patient, really get a good history about pain, what makes it better, what makes it worse. Think worse first. The only thing I would have done differently, I think I would have done an LP just to make sure he didn't have viral meningitis because I've seen viral meningitis present just most bizarre ways. So I probably would have done that differently. And then uh, the key is if you don't know what it is, don't put a label on something if you don't know. Be honest and say, headache of unclear origin, we're going to try some symptomatic management, and then we'll have the patient follow up. Because sometimes if you try and give the patient a diagnosis or put it on the chart, then that's early closure for the next doc. Oh, you just have this, and this person keeps coming back and they're crazy. But if you're like, we really don't know what's going on, it leaves psychologically that uh, room for people to go, what are we missing? Just like with Vanessa, she's being a great doc going, we're missing something. What is it? And then go a little further. So that is my summary. But what's the worst part? So the worst part of the story is that I developed a taste aversion to the bagels. Oh, no. <laughs> that is the worst. <laughs> and that's so common. Because I got so sick afterwards. Every time I think about the bagels, I'm just like, ooh. And it's so awful because they're they're real good bagels. They're real good. That is terrible. That is, and it's such a real thing. Like you... You have a food right before a serious illness and you just, your body's like, I don't know, it's probably that food. Never touch that shit again. 
I had that with cheesecake for like 10 years. I got super sick after cheesecake. I couldn't eat it for 10 years, but it's gone now. So I can eat cheesecake again. Gives me hope that I can eat the good bagels again. That's great. I also just wanted to do a huge shout out to everybody that helped out. Because obviously we got Swad on board once we uh, read his paper. (laughs) Huge, huge thanks to Swami and Vanessa and Stuart for always being just strident in trying to figure out what's going on. Their curiosity saves lives. And I just appreciate so much all of the support and help. You're all right too, Mel, I guess, but... (laughs) Thanks for not dying (laughs) and giving us a good story. You're welcome. Anytime. Never be an interesting patient. Stop it. Dear MRAP, you did not explain... Just to clarify, it's not ironic because the opposite is not happening of what you expect. Ah, it's coincidental because she's talking about her condition on MRAP and she was carrying MRAP swag. That's a coincidence. Ironic would be if you're carrying a box of books about how not to fall down the stairs and you tripped and you fell down the stairs. Or if you were carrying a box full of those papers about CSF leaks, then yeah. And New York still has the best bagels. Sam. Dr. All right, Dr. Rocker, thanks so much for coming to talk to us about bursitis. Well, nice to see you again, or at least hear you again. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so last week, I, you know, we were working fast track, and one of the residents saw a patient who had elbow swelling. That was their complaint. And go to see the patient. It's clear that she has an electronon bursitis. There's good range of motion at the joint. Joint itself's not tender. Joint line is fine. But the bursa itself is swollen. It's a little warm. There's a little overlying redness. It's like a pretty common thing that we see. But it turns out, you know, the resident pointed out that there is a great deal of variability in management in terms of who's going to tap this, who's not going to tap this. And it raised a fair number of questions that I couldn't answer. And I thought, you know what? Let's talk to Dr. Neha Rocker. She's going to tell us, emergency doc and sports medicine specialist. So let's get into it. Okay. So this is a really common thing, right? Your bursitis. And then you think about is this a septic bursitis? Is this a regular old bursitis, like a non-septic bursitis? Or actually, the other thing that we always tend to think about is, is it a septic joint, right? So these are the three things we have to sort of get through. So I think to approach this, first, we need to understand what is bursitis. So it's a swelling or inflammation of the bursa. And the bursa is this, I describe it as a fluid-filled sac. So for those of us who remember, it looks kind of like a breast implant. I will admit I've never thought of it like that, but okay, go on. Oh, sorry. That's how I describe <laughs> it to patients. They're good, right? Right? Feel them. They huh? feel totally huh? natural. So it's a fluid-filled sac, and it's lined with synovial cells, and you find it along any pointy spots in your body. And it keeps the tendon from fraying when it rubs over this pointy, bony prominence, okay? Got it. And so we have like 150 of these little bursas all over the body. And it's just to create this cushion so things can move against each other. So anytime it gets irritated or infected, it's going to swell because it's lined with synovial cells. So it's going to swell with synovial fluid. And this is important to know because when we think about treatment, you know, and what do we do? Once you realize that this is an inflamed synovial cell that's going to keep leaking fluid, inflammatory markers, then you know that if you just drain it and you keep doing the irritating activity, you're still going to fill it up with fluid. All right, so let's get into that. So we do have a corpendium chapter on that topic, so people can go over there to review some of the basics. But for a couple of more advanced questions, so first, if this patient does have this big swollen bursa, but it's not really red and there's no fever, 
should we drain it or just give them some NSAIDs and an ACE rep? You just pointed out that it might just recollect. So what do we do in that case? Yeah. So typically they recollect. So if the person is uncomfortable, you could do a therapeutic tap, but this is not going to be like solving the problem. If you drain it, it's likely going to reoccur unless you stop leaning on your elbow or stop doing the irritating activity. So my practice when I approach a simple olecranon bursitis is maybe I'll tap it, but I really can count on one hand in 15 years how many times I've tapped it. Typically, I ace wrap it and I give them NSAIDs and I, it's really behavior modification, right? It's telling them you need to change whatever it is you're doing because you're creating this bursitis. So now let's move along the redness spectrum, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Spectrum. So a common thing that comes up is whether this is a simple bursitis or a septic bursitis. We're going to talk about septic joint some other time, but septic bursitis. So, you know, there is a little warmth, a little erythema. How do you tell the difference then between a septic bursitis and a simple bursitis? So it's what you say. It's painful. It's swollen. The swelling and the redness, though, is typically localized to the area of the bursa. Also important to note, there's no joint effusion. And so if you got an x-ray for whatever reason, and you see no evidence of an elbow effusion, like a joint effusion, then that should lean you towards more a septic bursa. Your range of motion is kind of normal. Although when you're fully extended or fully flexed, you're going to have some pain because you're stretching that overlying inflamed tissue. And then in a septic bursa, your bursa will be tender to the touch. And you'll, like you say, have cellulitis of the surrounding skin. So sometimes I think there's a little bit of, you know, there's a little gray area there where mm-hmm. you're kind of scratching your head saying like, mm, you know, it could be, could be infected. Not really sure. Maybe inflammatory. Like when in doubt, should we just tap it? So there's a caveat though, right? Yeah, sure. We, I would love to tap all of these bursas and figure out is this septic or not. But if you have overlying cellulitis, you really don't want to stick a needle through cellulitis into a bursa because what was once not infected is now infected, right? And so, yes, you should try to stick a needle in it and get some fluid, but it's really hard to do if there's overlying redness. And so that's the conundrum. What do you try to do then? Do you try to like angle it from somewhere where there's not as much cellulitis? Or? Yeah, so maybe I could roll the dice and hope for the best. Sometimes I'll use a spinal needle, which has a trocar, so I'm not introducing bacteria into a bursa or into a joint. This is also true for joints. Or the other thing is this new paper came out, which I think you guys have discussed, where they started select patients on antibiotics and tried to see if everybody actually even needed the bursa tapped. And they found that in the patients who are reliable, who will come back if things get worse, and the patients who are allowed to take antibiotics and not have too many complications, that you can start these people on antibiotics and see how they do and have them follow up. And often you'll solve the problem. Yeah, that was a recent publication in AEM that Sanjay and Mike reviewed in the February EMA. Yes, looking at septic bursitis with antibiotics versus drainage. But so this is tough then. So what would you say your recommended approach is if you think it might be septic? Would you be draining it and putting it on antibiotics? If we do that, like, do we try to like leave it open in some way to drain? Or would you advocate for antibiotics alone? So the idea of leaving a bursa open, actually, um, it's not a bursa is not an abscess. So the idea of leaving it open or packing it 
None of that works in bursitis. So you can tap the bursa to obtain some fluid and send it off for studies. Then you'll have a definitive diagnosis of septic bursitis. If you can't tap the bursa because of overlying cellulitis or because of something else, then in the right patient who is, like I said, otherwise healthy, reliable, you can start them on antibiotics and see how they do, have them follow up, or you can admit them for IV antibiotics. If it seems like it's significant enough, then that might be the thing to do. And if you can't tap it, like you might need IR to tap it. Ah, interesting. Okay, excellent. And when you do get that tap, what's the cell count that tells us septic versus not septic? And are there there any other labs we should get off of it? So you're going to want to get a total leukocyte count. And if it's over 10,000 with more than 50% PMNs or neutrophils, then you should be thinking it's septic. That's sort of the classic way of thinking about septic versus non-septic bursa. And what criteria would you use for saying that person then should come in for IV antibiotics versus being able to go home on oral antibiotics? I think most of these can go home on oral antibiotics. I think it's more the unreliable or the sicker patients who should be coming in for IV antibiotics, the people who you don't think will be successful in the outpatient setting. Summary. To summarize, simple bursitis, really not much to do besides ACE bandage and outpatient follow-up and tell them to stop doing whatever activity is aggravating it. If we're thinking that it might be a septic bursitis, got to be careful when you tap it because of overlying cellulitis. But if you do decide to tap it and you can do that safely, that person can, if they do have septic bursitis, usually can go home with oral antibiotics and follow-up. True. Correct. Yes. And in the right patient, consider not tapping it, starting them on antibiotics, and getting them good follow-up. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Rocker. It's always great to have you. Great to talk to you again, Dr. Penza. Have a great day. Kids may not be small adults, but many pediatricians are. Ladies and gentlemen, the not-so-short Dr. Eileen Claudius with some pediatric pearls. I'm joined today by Diane Birnbaumer. We were having a conference recently, and she gave just a wonderful talk on giving bad news. What I really liked about her talk were the concrete points that I could take with me into my next patient interaction. Diane is a professor emeritus at UCLA and a senior clinical educator with us at Harbor. So today, Alex Groman, one of our fourth-year residents who will be a critical care fellow by the time this airs, and myself are going to talk to Diane about giving bad news to families and patients in the pediatric emergency department. So starting out, do you have any do and don't tips for providers who have to deliver terrible news to families? First of all, we're not really taught how to do this. So one of the things first and foremost is learn. It's just really important not to wing it. The day that you tell people this bad news is the worst day of their lives. Part of our job, but it is the worst day of their lives. And I think a lot of us are kind of mnemonic driven. We kind of like having systems so that we can make sure we don't miss anything. And there are several of these available. I'm sure many of you are aware of things like the ABCDE system or the breaks system or the spikes system that basically are just a mnemonic to get through the steps so they don't miss anything. It's just hard. And especially if it's something like a child, it's just devastating. So part of it is to stay professional, but stay human and find a way to do this that is the most effective, the least potentially harmful by doing something inadvertently stupid and trying to get the point across. So I like the spikes system and I'm just going to go through a few concrete steps. I carry a little card in my pocket with this because one of the things I just never, ever wanted to do was mess this up. 
you get one shot at this. And I never, ever wanted to mess this up. So I would look at this silly little card before every time I did it. And it really helped me remember certain things. For the spikes one, S stands for setting it up. And there's certain things in that setup that we don't necessarily do right. So one is knowing all the information and not just the medical information. A child has leukemia and finally had the septic event that led to their death. Not just that, but what's the person's name? And we're pretty good at kids. We're not quite so good at adults of making sure we know the person's name, making sure you talk to all the members of the care team involved. So say it's a trauma case and there's been a devastating injury, make sure that you and the surgeons and the neurosurgeons are going to all say the same thing when you go in there, or you're going to have confused messages. That's no good. And a couple of the little things that we forget as well, we kind of walk around in our messy scrubs and our yucky shoes. And that's something that you need to do a little check mark for yourself ahead of time too, is if you have a white coat on and there's blood on it, take it off. If you have bloody shoes on, exchange shoes with somebody else. You make sure you look appropriate when you go in there. And these seem like small things, but they make such a difference. And for me, the thing that really is important is mental rehearsal and sometimes actually even verbal rehearsal. Sometimes I'll walk into our bathroom. We have a staff bathroom at Harvard where I can walk in there and just talk it through. So in the spikes mnemonic, S is for setting. You're using it to talk about the setup as well, which I love. Now let's talk about the setting where you actually address the family. All of us have a private place to do this and should avail ourselves of that. Never in a hallway. No, never do this in a hallway. You know, sitting down, private place, tissues, a telephone, and introducing yourself and what your role is. Hi, I'm Dr. Bierenbaumer. I'm the emergency physician who took care of your child today. I'd like to talk to you about what happened. And make sure you know who's in there, especially in the kids. Who are the parents? They're the people you need to talk to first and most importantly, sit down. If you move to kind of the next step, there's a P in there, and that's basically their perspective. So one of the things when you start talking is don't start talking. Start asking. Start with a question. What do you know about what happened today? You'd be amazed what people do or don't know. Even if they're present when a code happened and they watched their loved one get taken away, they may not know. So ask what they know before you move on to asking sort of how they want to know things. You know, I have some things I need to tell you. Are you comfortable sitting here now? Is there anyone else you'd like to have here? Would you like clergy? Anything you'd like to have here? Because we need to talk about some things that happened today. Then you can actually talk. And especially when it's something like a death, it's really helpful to foreshadow something like, I have some bad news to tell you, or I'm so sorry, I need to tell you. And part of it is knowing that when you follow with, I need to tell you X, whenever you say the X, whatever it is, your daughter, you know, Cindy has died. When you say the words, they stop hearing. So if there's very important medical information you need to get across, it's worth starting with a little bit of that first. I know your grandfather had a cardiac arrest at home, had his heart stop at home, the paramedics were there. I want to also let you know that he has a pulse back, but there's some important information we need to talk about so that you get that sort of in there ahead of time and avoid medical jargon. I started with cardiac arrest in that last statement. That's wrong. What you want to really say is their heart stopped or they stopped breathing. All the medical jargon has to go out the window so you can basically convey it really clearly. No medical jargon. But when it comes to the real info, the down and dirty, what really, really happened, the dead, the cancer, the brain injury, those words have to be said. People need to hear it. If you dance around it, they'll never hear you. They don't want to hear it. If you say passed on or expired, it's saying that someone's loved and expired is like saying that you can sort of re-up the subscription. You know, you have to say that they've actually died. It's really, really important. And you might want to write some things down for them, give them a notepad to write questions down and be prepared for any response. I've had people do anything from just sit there stunned to burst out screaming to throwing chairs. So be prepared for any response and watch body language to kind of keep you tuned into what might be happening. And if they get mad at you, it's not you. 
It's the situation. Sit with them a while, offer some support, offer for calling the clergy, and then make sure that they know you're around, can answer any questions that they might have. Tell them what's coming down the pike next. You know, a social worker will be in, your clergy will be in, you'll see the neurosurgeon will probably be the person coming in next so that they know what's happening. It's just really important to make sure you have all those steps in a row and you don't drop any of those balls. Because sometimes it's that one thing I walk in with my bloody coat that blows the whole thing. You end up not being sort of successful in what is a very difficult situation. You mentioned asking if there was anyone else that they wanted to have present. If they say, yes, my husband, the child's father, whoever it is, is on their way, for me, that always sort of creates a little bit of an awkward moment. Do I tell them? Do I wait? We're sitting there kind of staring at each other. How do you handle that? Do you go ahead and tell them and then come back? Do you get the person on the phone if you can? That's really tough. Every piece of literature out there that I was able to find, and this makes sense psychologically as well, it is optimal to have both parents present especially when the news of the passing of a child, a death of a child is conveyed. And the reason for that is having the first parent, the parent that you tell, be the person who might be delivering that news to the second parent, takes an already difficult situation and lays another layer of difficulty in what's going to be a tough relationship going forward anyway. A death of a child is devastating to a marriage. In fact, a lot of marriages dissolve after the death of a child. You don't really want to add that extra layer of of sort of stress of that first parent feeling the need to tell the second parent what's happened. So having them both present, if possible, is really optimal. And there are ways to go about doing that. Anything from giving a little bit of information to the first parent, we're still working on, Cindy, I know you're concerned. I just want to let you know we're doing what we can. Is your spouse on the way? Is your significant other on the way? About how long might that be? You know that you can buy time a little bit to get both parents there at the same time. If it has to be on the phone, then it has to be on the phone. But you should be the one to be doing that. That's something that it shouldn't be the spouse. That should be you being the one on the phone to deliver the information. Again, you just don't want to add another layer to what is going to be a very stressed relationship by having one parent tell the other. Diane did a wonderful job of summarizing the spikes mnemonic. S is for setting. And in this case, we used it for set up as well. P is for perception or perspective, getting the family's perspective on what happened. I is for invitation, trying to get a sense of how much information the family wants and how they want it presented. K for knowledge, giving them the nitty-gritty information on what transpired with their loved one. And E for the emotions we have to address in the family, our colleagues, and quite frankly, ourselves. And finally, S for summary and strategy, ensuring understanding and guiding the family into what happens next. So now that we've gone through the basics of how to do this, let's get into some of the questions that have come up for many of us in putting this into practice. We want to do the best and the right thing for our patients, for their families, and help being that guiding person who takes them through an unfortunate event. With that being said, are there any things that you feel that are well-intentioned, but unfortunately have come across poorly when we finally go to deliver that bad news? I'm sure we all have them, the story where it just explodes and you just weren't prepared or you watch something happen. So for instance, one of the things is, I think we all intuitively know that saying the word dead is important, that you can't dance around it. But when you say the word dead is very important. You don't just walk into the room, stand there and say, your daughter Cindy's dead. And actually it's better to say has died. 
It makes it into sort of a passive voice. It makes it a little bit easier to absorb. It makes it a little bit softer. But using the word dead in the right timing is key. And I'll tell you the other thing that we do almost as a human response that can completely blow up in your face is to say, I know how you feel. I've seen that explode twice where the family turned on the person giving the information and said, how in the hell do you know how I feel? Have you had a child die? What can you say to that? So it is fine to be empathetic, but don't make it you. It's the other person that keeps the emphasis where it belongs. It sounds like such a nice thing to say, right? You know, it just sounds like so nice. I know how you feel. You don't. Unless you've lost a child, you just don't. That is such a great tip. And I know that we do have some listeners who have lost a child, and that is a very powerful experience and a powerful one to share with families if they so choose. But for those of us who haven't, I agree that is much more likely to be perceived as insulting than it is to be perceived as empathetic, even if empathy was our goal. All of these amazing tips you've given me, I know myself well enough to know that in the middle of the night, I may have some trouble remembering and organizing. And so Alex has a case, and I'd love to just go through it and hear some things that you would say in this situation. And when I'm exhausted and stressed and still trying to do my best to communicate bad news with a family, I'm going to channel you and try to remember some of these statements that you have used in order to be more effective in this conversation. So the case I wanted to talk about is a case I actually had personally about a year ago. We had a paramedic run from home for a school-aged child with a respiratory arrest and a strong history of asthma. When our paramedic team arrived on scene, they found a very short of breath asthmatic child who unfortunately went into respiratory arrest and coded in the field. Paramedics did the right thing. They started resuscitating the child and eventually brought them to our emergency department. They've had the family come along with them and the family was present with us as we continue to resuscitate the child in the emergency department. Unfortunately, despite all of our heroic efforts and with the family present at bedside the entire time, the child ended up dying. I was wondering if you could help provide some guidance on dealing with difficult news when family members have been present through everything at the bedside and how to transition them from the resuscitation to the aftercare of learning that someone, specifically their child, has passed away. Alex, this brings up actually an interesting concept, which is the idea of family presence during a resuscitation. I think a lot of us have pretty strong feelings about this one way or the other, but I'm a big proponent of this. And the literature does show that at least for parents, actually for everybody, but for parents in particular, seeing all of that happen is very helpful to their resolution and acceptance of what happens with their child. So that part's good. Was someone with the family the whole time this was happening. When you have family present during resuscitation, there should always be somebody with the family. And that gives you an opportunity not just to gauge their response, but to educate, to explain so that they understand what they're seeing. And it can also sort of, as you see things not going well, be a way to predicate what is looking to be an eventuality, which is that the child is not going to survive this resuscitation. So I want to throw it back a little bit to you, Alex. What did the family know during the resuscitation as they were watching? What were they told? So you brought up a good point about having someone there with the family. We are very privileged here at Harbor to have a large team of residents. We have 24-hour social work. 
And we had, while I was managing the resuscitation with the attending, had one of our junior residents kind of guide the family, explaining what was going on, as well as our social worker team. From the parents' perspective, they knew that their child had asthma. They thought at home he was just having a mild asthma exacerbation, and then things just got a lot worse. And one thing that was happening in the room during the resuscitation is there was a lot of self-blame that the parents were experiencing, thinking that this was their fault that their child was so sick and not doing well, that kind of contributed to a lot of what was going on. Absolutely. So that is actually extraordinarily common in the death of a child, in the death of anybody, but in the death of a child in particular, a parent's job is to protect your child. And if your child dies, it is something that you feel you should have been able to protect them from. So part of that education is explaining what we all know, which is severe acute asthma is devastating. Severe acute asthma can be lethal. There's nothing sometimes that we can do about it to reverse it when it's really, truly one of those out of the blue, horrendous acute severe episodes of asthma. So part of helping those parents is to explain that this is nothing that they had anything to do with. They gauged what they thought was mild asthma. That's completely fine. But every once in a while, it gets out of control, even beyond our ability to fix it. So it's not the onus on them. And part of what's healing for them is for us to address that from the absolute get-go. Honestly, my personal feeling, and this is probably a little bit unethical, is for us to take the onus and to say, you know, they didn't suffer, or it was a sudden event, or there's nothing that you could have done about this any differently, because they need to live the rest of their lives with what happened today. That is so important. So having the parents in that room was, I think, a really good opportunity to start to really lay strong groundwork about asthma can every once in a while just be overwhelming and rapid and deadly. And we even in medicine can't fix it. So there's no way they could have done that. That's crucial, crucially important in this kind of situation. Do you let the parents hold their child who has recently passed away? Absolutely, 100%. Unless there is a legal reason you cannot, where it's a murder investigation or something where you cannot, parents need to be able to be with their child as long as they need to be with their child. And that can be hours sometimes. And encourage them to hold them and hold their hand and hold them in their lap and hug them. And I honestly, just even thinking about it makes me cry. I cannot imagine what that must be like. And the other part of that is when they're ready to stop is to make sure that that parent knows you will take care of their child. You will take that person from them and you will assure that everything is done for that child. But that child doesn't have to suddenly be cold and abandoned and alone. It, it terrifies parents. And one of the things you can do, having something a parent can take with them is really helpful. Anything from a lock of hair to if it's a baby, you know, the little footprints that they do up in the L&D, something they can take with them is very comforting for the parents. I've angered the coroner in the past by doing footprints with regular ink or handprints with regular ink. So I just want to remind providers that most hospitals will have an inkless pad that does not leave a mark on the child, particularly if there's any chance that this might have been a non-accidental trauma case. Once we've gotten to the point where we have broken the news to the family, At what point do you decide it's time for me to step away as the physician or the provider and go on and take care of the next patient? That's a good question. And I think this is very individually based. If something escalates where it is clear that violence is imminent, your time to leave is now. 
and never let the family get between you and the door. You are the closest to the door. And it doesn't happen very often, but I know that recently it happened at Harbor where there's a hole in the wall in our family room because of what happened. So the key is to protect yourself. So first of all, just be prepared for that. And it's not very common, but it does happen. The second part is I think this takes emotional intelligence. And most of us have quite a bit of emotional intelligence, especially the longer you practice. And you can tell when someone is ready for you to leave, but don't make it instant. Don't just deliver the news and then run. You deliver the news and then you wait. And even waiting with silence or waiting with crying, waiting is important. It shows you care. It shows that you are there for them if they need to ask any questions, if they have any further anything. And it's always worth when the moment is right. And it's usually several minutes to even longer, 10 minutes sometimes, depending, asking them if there's anything that they would like any questions they have, any concerns they have, anything else that you can let them know, and that you are around if they need anything else. I think most of us kind of get a feel for this. There's not like a super perfect answer because each situation is different. But the key is mainly make time. Don't just get up and leave. Spend some time. That turns out to be vitally important for them to feel cared for. Something that I think helps me when I'm exiting the room is to let them know precisely when my shift ends and let them know how to contact me throughout the duration of my shift. We have attending only Thursdays and I was working one the other day and had to tell a family about their loved one's death. And I wrote down my name and I wrote down my little spectrophone number, said, give this to the social worker. If the social worker is not present, you can go to the desk, make sure they can get a hold of me. I'm here till four o'clock. I can answer any questions. You can call me every five minutes if you want. I'm here to answer your questions. And I was actually surprised. They called me four times with very reasonable questions every time. And it left sort of a good end to the conversation without making it feel like I was ending the conversation. And then I ensured that they had time to think about it and get their questions answered. Making sure that they know that they can get a hold of you. That's a brilliant idea. I mean, probably something that should be done routinely. I know some private hospitals actually have business cards as your emergency physician. You can actually hand them your card with your spectral link or whatever your you know, access on the back. Oh, and the other thing is in the room, have paper or have them talk into their own cell phone to, for questions as they come up because they forget them instantly. You know, writing them down is really important to make sure that they can then ask you what they need to know. Just as the passing of a child is affecting the parents, it oftentimes affects those who are caring for the child, ourselves, our nursing staff, everyone in the emergency department who was a part of caring for the ill child. Do you have any tips for self-care I'm going to take that in two parts. One is for the whole team and then one is for the individual. I have heard and seen some pretty wonderful things that people do as a group around the death of anyone. One is when a code is called honoring the person with a moment of silence as a group and with that person's name. We're going to take a moment of silence for Mr. Smith. So as a group, what we often do in medicine is use dark humor, things that we do to kind of make ourselves feel better to keep a distance of the reality of the moment. I get it. We see a lot of sad things and keeping a distance sort of is a protection measure, except that we also need to remember the humanity of what we do. So having a moment as a group together, honoring the individual who died, not just as a person there on the gurney, but as a named person who's someone's father, grandfather, brother, you name it, I think is really important. And making sure anyone who feels that something could have been done differently, should have been done differently, gets it answered right then and there. I like people who end codes with, does anyone else have anything else that they would like to suggest? Is everyone comfortable with calling the code? Gives people a chance to speak up because we all have to kind of deal with this later. So as a group, kind of several ways of dealing with this. But I have to tell you, as a person, as an individual, find something that works for you. For me, because of our emergency department, I could go outside 
I really find nature and fresh air and sun and flowers and the birds that have the nests above the ambulance bay a healing place a time to just see something that's beautiful, take a big breath, take a step away. I do that a lot during shifts. Each of us needs to kind of find a place to do that. Medicine took an incredible hit this last year. We have dealt with more death and more bad news, I think, than you could add the 20 years prior to that together as a group. The hit of this is huge. So taking care of yourself is absolutely vital. Let yourself cry. I had to tell a 72-year-old guy my first shift back after my 72-year-old father died of metastatic lung cancer that this guy had metastatic lung cancer. I almost couldn't breathe. It's so important to just take a moment and let yourself be human. And then go home and find a way to journal it out, run, call a friend, something that you know is supportive for you. It's just key. I'm worried about PTSD coming down the pike for our specialty. I'm very concerned about what's gonna happen to all of us with everything that's happened this last year. So take care of yourself, it's really vital. And each and every time, don't expect to go be able to see an ankle sprain and not be moved by what you just had happen. That story about your father is interesting. And I have to say that obviously I had been doing this for some time before having a child. And the first time I came back after having my son and had to tell a family that their child had passed, I lost it. And that had never happened to me before. Obviously, I felt bad for the families. For me, I think I sort of had a decent understanding of what it was like to have a child, having done so much babysitting and siblings and the whole thing. But that was the one thing that really changed for me. And it wasn't kind of an enduring situation, but I would say as a warning to people who have just either lost a family member or who have just had a child, the first time you do this after, it is probably going to be much harder than you expect. Absolutely. No question about it. And it is funny how your life circumstances change. It's suddenly more personal. One thing that I find is so important in participating in this conversation is we went into medicine because we love the balance of both the science and caring for people. And part of that is having to guide family members through tough times. And I think you provided us with the skills and a good foundation on how to do that eloquently and with the best results as possible in caring for our patients and their family. Well, I want to thank you both for letting me participate in this. It's such an important part of our job, one that we aren't taught how to do, and this isn't anything to wing it. We're all thoughtful people. It just, I think we all also are very skilled people, and this is something you can develop skills at to make it as easy as possible for the family, and then take care of yourself. We spend a lot of time thinking about diabetic ketoacidosis, but a lot less time discussing the other major causes of ketoacidosis, including alcohol. AKA alcoholic ketoacidosis occurs in a particularly vulnerable population because it is those patients who we frequently see with intoxication. And the hard part is that we see them frequently, but we can't miss this diagnosis when that's what they're presenting with. So we've got Britt Long back on to discuss AKA the pitfalls, the pearls, and how we can be absolute experts in taking it on. Brit Long. Swami, I'm super excited to be back. I really enjoy taking care of these patients. This is one of those diseases that seems straightforward, but there are a couple ways that we can make mistakes with these patients. And we really don't want to make mistakes with these patients because we talked about this is a vulnerable group. And Britt, I'm sure you have the same experience. Some of these patients, the chronic alcoholics, we see them more frequently than we see our own families. So they've become part of our family and we want to take the best care of them. So let's start really basic. 
give us a definition, a quick definition of the disease and what the underlying pathophysiology is for why it's happening. Pathophys. AKA is basically a syndrome of alcohol use and ketoacidosis. Now, I'm not going to dive into the biochemistry here. I don't want to put everyone to sleep. Oh, come on. But the best way to think about this is a patient who's been using alcohol. They've had no food, poor nutrition, and then they have dehydration with some stressor that pushes them into ketoacidosis. That's the formula for AKA. History and presentation. The key is to look for some underlying stressor that pushed them into ketoacidosis. And you also need to figure out why they stopped drinking. This is actually one of the first mistakes we make is not looking for that underlying issue. The most common conditions that are associated with AKA are going to be infection and pancreatitis. But when we look at the data, basically any condition that could reduce oral intake could cause AKA. So this could be intra-abdominal pathology, maybe rhabdo, hypothermia, or another toxic ingestion like salicylate toxicity, or even a toxic alcohol. It really can't be stated enough that we have to spend a lot of time looking for that underlying stressor, identifying it, and then making sure that we treat that in addition to treating that alcoholic ketoacidosis. And I think one of the big pitfalls, Britt, is that these are patients that we see frequently. They come in with alcohol intoxication, and now they're back again, and we have a little bit of this diagnostic momentum to just say, oh, oh, it's John. John's here because he's drunk again. What are some of the features that we need to key in on on those presentations to make sure that we get to this diagnosis? The classic presentation is that chronic drinker with vomiting after they stop drinking alcohol. This is going to be the most common scenario we see, but it isn't always the case. AKA could also occur in those patients who have been binge drinking and they just haven't had great oral intake. Most of these patients are going to present with signs or symptoms of dehydration. They're probably going to have significant nausea and vomiting. And then abdominal pain is going to be present in about three quarters of patients. The key here is that this is usually diffuse abdominal pain. If you find abdominal distension, if they have focal lower abdominal pain or rebound tenderness, then you need to think about another intra-abdominal condition. Most of these patients are going to have normal mental status or some very mild confusion. If they're severely altered, then you need to think about an intracranial issue, an infection, or a toxic ingestion. It's, and it's the same with fever. This should not be present in your run-of-the-mill AKA. Finally, like in all alcoholic patients, you need to think about Wernicke encephalopathy here. This is very similar to the patient with DKA when they have abdominal pain. It's a generalized abdominal pain, but if you can localize it to the right lower quadrant, that's not just the ketones causing that. That's an appendicitis you got to go looking for. And we need to have kind of the same approach with the alcoholic ketoacidosis. Generalized abdominal discomfort, fine. It's not that big a deal most of the time as long as it's improving. But if they have focal tenderness, any peritoneal signs, go and chase that down. Get that CAT scan or an ultrasound, depending on what you think is going to be the best modality. And you pointed out a lot of those things that we need to be keyed in on, things like pancreatitis, like cholecystitis, but any intra-abdominal pathology can set this off. So that abdominal pain, the abdominal tenderness, we really have to think very carefully about it. Labs. We have that patient in front of us who's a chronic drinker. They've got the abdominal pain, the nausea, the vomiting. We're worried about alcoholic ketoacidosis. We're clearly going to pop a line in them. We're going to get some labs. But what labs do I really need to make this diagnosis? Yeah, that's a, that's a key question here. You know, we had talked about finding that underlying etiology, but the key labs in AKA are going to be electrolytes, renal function, liver function, a venous blood gas with a lactate, and then ketone testing. 
hopefully for the ketone testing, you have a serum beta-hydroxybutyrate. Beta-hydroxybutyrate is the predominant ketone here, even more so than in patients with DKA. The primary findings that we're going to see in AKA are going to be an anion gap, metabolic acidosis, ketosis, a lactate elevation, and then also electrolyte abnormalities are very common, like decreased sodium, phosphate, potassium, and then also magnesium. One quick sidetrack here, though, Swami, another potential pitfall is that we see that ketoacidosis, we see that elevation with the anion gap metabolic acidosis, and we don't think about other conditions. There's actually a differential for these lab findings. We need to think about DKA, renal failure, shock, sepsis, and then a toxic ingestion like salicylates and toxic alcohols. These can cause ketoacidosis with that anion gap metabolic acidosis. And hopefully this is where that history and exam will help us. Now back to AKA, mixed acid-base conditions are actually more common. So less than 25% of patients will have an isolated anion gap metabolic acidosis. When it comes to the glucose, we learn that most of these patients are going to have low levels. Most patients are going to have normal or mildly low levels. About 10% will have severe hypoglycemia with levels less than 60 milligrams per deciliter. And another 10% are going to have hyperglycemia with levels above 250. Classically, we learned that the serum ethanol level is going to be zero or low, but this is not reliable. Think about those chronic drinkers that you see on an everyday basis. They live at an elevated alcohol level. Finally, lactate's usually less than four. If you have a patient with a single-digit bicarb, their pH is less than seven, they have a lactate over four with an organ injury, then think about a toxic alcohol like ethylene glycol or methanol toxicity. And I think we do have to remember that while patients can come in with just AKA, they often will have AKA and withdrawal. And then, of course, they have the thing that set off the AKA in the first place. So they've got AKA withdrawal and they've got pancreatitis. And so we really have to be watching for all of those things to understand how complex these patients can be in terms of management. Management. Because I think that is the crux of the matter. How do we manage these patients expertly? What are the tips that you can give us to make sure that when we kind of have these patients wrapped up, ready for admission, the admitting team is like, damn, there's nothing for me to do. <laughs> We're going to be looking for that underlying stressor. We're going to treat it once we found it. But for AKA, the management actually looks a lot like how we treat DKA. It's going to be fluid resuscitation, glucose, electrolyte, and vitamin repletion, and then symptomatic therapy with antiemetics. Early on, we do need to give these patients fluids to restore intravascular volume. Balanced fluids are probably your best bet. They can reduce hyperchloremic non-anion gap metabolic acidosis that we might see with normal saline. If the patient is hyponatremic, then you should think about using an isotonic fluid that contains dextrose. And that brings me to sugar. Dextrose is an essential part of their therapy here. This repletes the serum glucose, it increases insulin secretion, and then it also decreases glucagon secretion. All of these reduce the ketoacidosis, they can improve the patient's symptoms, and then they also improve the pH. If that patient is severely hypoglycemic, we need to treat this immediately. You can use D50, or you could use D10, 100 to 250 milliliters. If the patient does not have severe hypoglycemia, then you need to look at potassium first. The issue with giving patients glucose here without checking the potassium is that glucose can result in insulin secretion and then cause hypokalemia. If the patient is normoglycemic and they have a potassium that's over 3.5, then you can start D5 after your initial fluid resuscitation. Now, like I mentioned, some patients are going to be hyperglycemic. You need to think about DKA here. These patients are going to need insulin infusion. I had mentioned the electrolytes and thiamine. You're going to be wanting to replete that potassium. 
the sodium potentially, the phosphate, the magnesium, but then thiamine is an essential component of therapy. It's not just 100. We recommend 200 milligrams IV based on the current data. If you've discovered Wernicke encephalopathy, then you'll want to be treating that with 500 milligrams IV. Finally, once you've improved these patients, you need to offer addiction support services. It's kind of like that patient with opioid use disorder. If we talk with these patients about their drinking, the need for nutrition, and provide them with some support, we can have a major impact on the lives of these patients. These are all really important points in management, and I think that the issue of Wernicke's encephalopathy or giving thiamine is one that maybe we forget to do, but it is critically important. Remember that it's not just that they have to have confusion, ophthalmoplegia, and nystagmus. They're rarely going to have all three, but it's any of those three in the setting of poor oral intake which all of our alcoholic patients have. And so we really need to have a, a very high clinical suspicion for Wernicke's, treat it aggressively. I like your recommendation. Give a little bit of a higher dose of thiamine to prevent Wernicke's. If you actually think they have it, that's a much different course of treatment. It's that 500 milligrams. They clearly need to be admitted to the hospital. And of course, if you're having trouble remembering all of the different pieces of Wernicke's, you can always use that Waco mnemonic. Wernicke's is ataxia, confusion, ophthalmoplegia. <laughs> Right. And Britt, I have rarely had the alcoholic ketoacidosis patient that magically turns around in an hour or two and can go home. It does happen. It does happen from time to time. But usually the patient needs more support than we can do in a couple of hours in the emergency department. So it's really important for us to make sure that we advocate for the patient. We bring them into the hospital to get them the support we need. And again, with managing and identifying that underlying stressor, be broad with your workup. Get the EKG. Get the extra lab test that you're like, man, do I really need that lab test? You probably do. Any signs of trauma, get the head CT. This is not a place to try and skip on tests that you think you might need because you probably need them. Swami, you're absolutely right. Most of these patients are going to need admission to the hospital. They're going to have severe electrolyte changes. They may have difficulties tolerating oral fluids. So they're most likely going to be admitted. If you have that patient, they're able to tolerate oral fluids, they're eating, you've resolved the ketoacidosis and the electrolyte changes and they're feeling better, then they might be appropriate for discharge. Summary. Great crash course in alcoholic ketoacidosis. And again, this is core content. And yet I think we sometimes do it wrong or, or maybe we just don't get all of the important points. And I can't stress this enough. And I'm just going to say it one more time, Britt, because it is so important. When you have that patient with alcoholic ketoacidosis, make sure to look for that underlying cause Look really broadly. Remember that they are at risk for so many different disorders, whether it be intra-abdominal pathology, whether it be myocardial ischemia, uh, pulmonary embolism, rhabdomyolysis. There are so many different things that can happen here that can set off that AKA. We need to make sure that we are ardently looking for those causes and then reverse the causes in addition to treating that alcoholic ketoacidosis. Britt, thanks so much for coming on and talking about AKA with us. I can't wait to have you back on to address another one of these topics that maybe we have forgotten all of the key points in management. AKA is a great one. We've got some other ones on tap down the line too. Swami, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Wernicke's is ataxia confusion, ophthalmoplegia. Ataxia confusion, ophthalmoplegia. For the way go, you remember and yeah. you don't have no diamond. Ah. simple and it goes like this. Oh, the w. w stands for Wernicke's. Ataxia <laughs> right.
This is the Ultra Ultra. It's the August papers. And let's just start off with one of the best studies that you're going to read about probably in the next year or so. Abstract one. It's from the New England Journal of Medicine. It's from Australia, so therefore you know it's good. And it's about the use of high-flow nasal oxygen in neonates when you're intubating. We know these little neonates, and the average age here was 28 weeks. Like, they're not even neonates. They're pre-neonates. The average weight, 920 grams. We know that these kids, when you need to tube them, can crash and burn really quickly, and they're a hard tube. So they divided them into high-flow nasal oxygen versus usual, and the high-flow nasal oxygen group did way better. Less desats, physiologically more stable, just better all around. Number needed a treat of six. So high-flow nasal oxygen, if you've got it in these tiny little kids, will help save you. Now, having said that, still 50% of the time they missed it on the first try, but this high-flow nasal oxygen, reduced desats to all that stuff, this is really a profound study because it is so well done it's randomized. It's in over 200 kids, and it's in the New England Journal of Medicine. And did I say it's from Melbourne, Australia, where I went to med school? Come on. This is one of the best studies you're going to read. Go check it out. You should institute this as soon as you can if you look after these tiny, tiny kids. Good day. Abstract 3. Abstract 3 is another paper about kids and uh, video laryngoscopes. And this one is Video Laryngoscope Screen Visualization and Tracheal Intubation Performance, a video-based study in Pediatric Emergency Department, Annals of Emergency Medicine. And basically what they did is they looked at people using a video laryngoscope and they asked a number of questions, but this was the big one. How often did you switch between looking at the screen and looking directly at the, the airway? And it turns out that if you look between the two a lot, you are much more likely to miss the intubation. This doesn't answer the question, is it because you had poor technique? Because you like to switch between looking at the blade and looking at the screen and back and forth and back and forth. Or you were doing that switching because it was a difficult airway and that's kind of what you do when things are going poopy. But it is an interesting study that starts to really, as Sanjay said, at a granular level, start to look at how we use video laryngoscope. One size does not fit all and maybe we can start to think about best practices. One of those best practices may be you should just look at the screen or you should just look at the screen every now and then. But certainly there is an association between looking at the screen and back and forth and back and forth a lot and failure. I don't know if it's causal, but don't do that if you don't have to. Abstract 4. Abstract 4 is an interesting paper because it's a new drug. It's, I think, a new class of drug. It's sort of, um, it's called Asindexin and it's a factor 11A inhibitor. That's right, not a 10A, an 11A inhibitor. And the theory here is that this actually could result in less propagation of clot and less bleeding for a significant degree compared to the old DOAX. So this study is not conclusive. It's sort of a dose-raging, double-dummy sort of study. But more studies are coming. And I think rightly, Mike says, I'm just letting you know that this asindexin, 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 I think it's called. Asindexin. Is a new drug, and I think sort of a new drug class, that might actually, if it works out, replace not just drugs for anticoagulation for AFib, but also for post-primary prophylaxis for MI and strokes. So this might become aspirin if it works out. We don't know if it's going to work out, but there you go. An 11A inhibitor. Why? Because it goes to 11. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? Abstract 5. Abstract 5 is another really interesting paper. It's a concept paper, subdissociative dose ketamine with Haldol versus fentanyl on pain reduction in patients with acute pain in the emergency department randomized trial in American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Here's the idea. We don't want to use opioids. We don't like opioids anymore. We're going through a phase where we don't like opioids. 
And this was, uh, how about you use a little ketamine and a little Haldol, would that be better? And it turns out that in this little study, it was better for pain control and everything looked better, tastes great, less filling, maybe a little bit more agitation at 10 minutes. But this could be another alternative, another drug cocktail alternative to using standard opioid analgesia. We're going to continue to see more of those, and this is going to play out over time. But having more options, I think, is good. So uh, think about a little low-dose ketamine sprinkled with a low-dose Haldol. That might be the right combo. Oh, we'd like a brutal ketamine in the bottom and sprinkle a little Haldol on top of it. Oh, welcome to Julia Child. This is the consummate chef. <laughs> Abstract 6. Abstract 6 was about the height of the fever in kids and the chance that it's associated with serious bacterial illness. This was in, let me flip the page here, BMC Pediatrics. To me, this paper is interesting and a little bit confusing because if you've followed this literature over time, it turns out that this question is very interesting. And the basic question goes like this. Does the height of the fever in a kid you know, correspond with the chance of serious bacterial illness? And the papers actually go both ways, which means that it's really unclear to tease out. So if you've got a kid with a fever 104.5, are they much more likely to have a serious bacterial illness than a kid with 38.5, for example? And this study of admitted kids under 90 days found basically no good correlation. You could have a really high fever, no bacterial illness. You could have a low-grade fever and have serious bacterial illness. So it turns out that it's not great. Now, there could be a number of reasons for this. It could be when you took the temperature, the age of the kid and all that kind of stuff. But in general, if the kid looks poopy and needs to be admitted, um, you shouldn't really put into that algorithm the height of the fever. You can have viruses that produce very high fevers. And that shouldn't be the reason that you admit somebody. You can have bacterial illness and the fever isn't that high. So fever alone is sort of the trigger. And even that can be, you know, not the only trigger you should be looking at. But the height of the fever, it's really unclear as to what you should do with that information. So in this one study, again, very specific group under the age of 90 days that were already being admitted for some reason, the height of the fever wasn't a great correlate with the chance that ultimately they'd get diagnosed with a serious bacterial illness. But this is a way more interesting story than we have to tell in a minute or two. Abstract 12. Abstract 12 was a fascinating one. Usefulness of contrast-enhanced multi-detector commuted tomography in identifying upper gastrointestinal bleeding, a retrospective study of patients admitted to the emergency department. And this was in what journal? Hello, wait for it. PLOS1. I've never heard of this. Anyway, what they did in this article was ask the question, can computed tomography with some contrast detect who's having an upper GI bleed? This is something that a lot of people have been talking about. Maybe if I do a high-resolution CT scan with contrast in somebody with an upper GI bleed, I'll be able to actually see the contrast leaking out, wherever it's from their varices or wherever, or I'll see a hematoma, and wouldn't that be great? And this is a super biased study in favor of actually finding that the CT scan would be good. And guess what? It didn't find that it was good. It missed it most of the time. Most of the time it will miss an acute bleed. If you see an acute bleed on that CT scan, it probably is really there. But the vast majority of the time, it missed it. So why we're seeing more and more of these ordered, I do not know. It is what we call a shitey test. Abstract 13. Abstract 13, I think is a really good one. It's the effect of intramuscular versus intraarticular glucocorticoid injection on pain among adult patients with knee osteoarthritis, the KIS randomized clinical trial in the JAMA Open Network. And here is the idea. You've got some knee arthritis, and we know that people come in with flares every now and then to the immunity department, to the urgent care, to the outpatient setting, wherever it is. And traditionally, orthopedic surgeons, for example, would do an intra-articular injection of steroids in those patients. 
The downside, you could get an infection there. The downside might be you erode your cartilage a bit faster. The upside, you put the steroid right where the problem is. So the question is, what if I just gave that steroid intramuscularly? Would that make a difference? How does it compare? And this study said basically they did about the same. It wasn't a huge study. We don't have lots of power here. But it looks like at eight weeks, at 12 weeks, they did about the same. That the steroid, whether you put it intramuscularly or whether you put it intraarticularly, that reduced the inflammation and they felt better. So this could have huge implications if we can reproduce this in a larger study that says, yeah, there really is no difference. Because now, if you're not comfortable injecting knees, but you see these patients, and everybody sees these patients because knee osteoarthritis is so common, maybe you'll be able to say, well, let's just give you a, and they gave 40 milligrams of transimilone. Maybe I'll give you 40 milligrams of transimilone IM during this acute flare, and you're going to feel better after a couple of months. Now, how often we can do this and, uh, you know, ultimately, what are the outcomes with these patients over the long, long term? I don't know, but this is a really common practice. The patient comes in, they're feeling terrible, they've tried everything as an outpatient, and they're looking at you like, what can you offer me? In the past, it was, well, we can try some steroids in the joint, but this suggests, well, maybe if you don't do that, you can do some steroids in the muscles, which would be cool. Abstract 16. I'm running out of time, but I want to do this last one. There's this guy called Stuart Swadden, perhaps you've heard of him. He says, we need to know what we need to know, and one step further. And he says that about emergency medicine, but it's true in every place you work. So this is about non-operative versus surgical treatment of Achilles tendon rupture. Lots of people see this in the emergency department, urgent care, in the outpatient setting. And we've traditionally said, you know, you can treat these non-operatively, where you put them in sort of a plantar boot, or operatively, where you take them to the OR. Well, this was a large randomized trial, which said, okay, we're going to randomize you to either non-operative treatment, surgical treatment, or this sort of semi-surgical treatment, which isn't quite as invasive, and look at outcomes over time and which one is best. And it turns out, which way do you want this to fail? So if you go to surgery, then you're going to have a nerve injury about 5% of the time. And if you don't go to surgery and just do conservative therapy, you're going to not have nerve injury, but you're going to re-rupture about, guess what, 5% of the time. So it's which way do you want to fail? Do you want to fail with a bit of nerve injury or do you want to fail with a bit of the chance of a re-rupture? So I think this is really big. It's over 500 patients in a randomized trial that says, you know, there's no zero-sum game here. If you don't go to surgery, you're going to rupture more. If you do go to surgery, we're going to have some problems with nerve injury. I really like this. It is not your job to decide whether this person is going to go to surgery or not. But you can tell that patient after they come in and you're splinking them up and saying, we're going to send you to an orthopedic surgeon. You've got some choices here. Um, you might have surgery, you might not. You'll have a discussion. The one thing I would say about this paper is that not all Achilles tendon ruptures are created equal. There are some where it's ping and it's completely torn apart. Those probably should go to surgery. And then there's those ones that are more partial. Maybe they would do better without surgery. Uh, it's just me. Uh, but there you go. This is a really good set. Look, this was the ultra, ultra summary. Have I said it before? I think I've said it before. Maybe I've said it once before. Maybe I've said it twice before. Possibly I've said it three times before. Quite literally, people walking down the street screaming because it goes to 11. Sprinkled with a low dose, how though? And if you don't believe me, you can do some steroids in the muscles, which would be cool. Just listen to prior ultra summaries where I've said it at least 12 times. And if you say something enough, we know that it becomes the truth. My name is Mel Herbert. I'll talk to you next month. Herbert, out! Good out.
All right, welcome to the mailbag. It's time for some listener questions and comments. And this month, we're coming from the home office in Big Hole Basin, Montana. Big Hole Basin's got a big hole river. Swami, what do you got for us? All right, so we got a, a bit of a long listener question, but one that we thought was really, really good. Long letter one. Have you done a piece on how to talk to our EM coworkers about the continuing practices that we do that are not evidence-based? I'm in a group that doesn't really do chart reviews. We do M&M, but that's about it. QI is sorely lacking. And the group can be very defensive when we approach these subjects where we say, well, I know that's what we used to do 10, 15 years ago, but things are a little different now. We're not always up to date on what the most recent practice is and what the most recent practice should be. I've tried to bring up different issues pertaining to this over the years. I've tried to engage, but people don't really listen. I feel like we have a lot of opiate over-prescribing, and whenever I bring it up, people are like, well, you know, ibuprofen can kill people too. Are opiates really that different? And what's frustrating this listener, Jan, is how we can actually clinically improve when maybe our group is, is starting to struggle along. They're not really embracing the newest information and the newest things. And Jan, I think this is a really hard question because these are your colleagues, these are your friends, and you don't want to be difficult with them, but at the same time, you want to lift everybody up because it's what your patients deserve. And so, Jan, I can't really think of another doc that we work with that is about lifting people up and making everybody around him better than Al Sacchetti. So we went to Al, we sent him this listener's letter, and we said, Al, give us your thoughts. Al, there are a number of questions within the listener's question. Let's take them one at a time. What do you think about docs who don't practice evidence-based medicine? I think evidence-based medicine is a two-edged sword, and you have to be really careful. Remember, we practice medicine, and really what you care about is not what evidence-based medicine says, it's what the outcome is for your patients. And unfortunately, there's a lot of evidence-based medicine that doesn't match my clinical practice. For example, the evidence-based medicine says that you should be doing lumbar punctures on infants in a sitting position and use an ultrasound on them. But, you know, my experience has been in my practices, I've always done them in a lateral decubitus position. I've never used an ultrasound. And my outcomes are like 10 times better than any of the reported outcomes using the evidence-based approaches. I mean, in, in all honesty, I got well into the 90% success rate without traumatic taps in these infants. If I'm going to practice evidence-based medicine, my outcomes are going to be much poorer and my patients are going to suffer. So I think you have to really balance what evidence-based medicine says to what practitioners are doing. And again, medicine is more of an art than it is a science at times. So when you're looking at procedures in particular, there's some docs who are really good at certain procedures doing it a certain way and others that aren't. If those are the ones that write the articles and publish the data, then they're going to skew the approach to their way of doing it. But yet the other docs who are doing it with great success because they're just better at it and a little bit more skillful at it, well, they'll be described as not following evidence-based medicine. So you really have to be careful how you look at it. Do you think this applies to all aspects of medicine? I think this difference between evidence-based medicine and practice-based medicine is most apparent when you're looking at procedures and cognitive thinking about an approach to a, a particular problem. It doesn't work if you have a very objective outcome. So if your outcome is either the patient lived or died when they were given this medicine, well, then that's a little bit more objective. And yes, you're probably going to have everybody following the evidence-based medicine there. But if you're looking at other aspects of it, particularly the softer aspects of it, where you need to use a lot of clinical judgment, 
then I think evidence-based medicine is a little bit more difficult. One of the things that's kind of interesting, there's a sociologist by the name of William Cameron Coulter. And what he said was, not everything that counts can be counted, and not everything that can be counted counts. And there's lots of variations of this. But what it really means is the following. I'm trying to solve a problem and decide if something really works or not. But the really important thing, the outcome I'm looking for, I can't measure. So I pick a bunch of surrogates and measure those. And that's not always accurate. And I think we see this a lot in medicine. I think that the best example is the, the high-flow nasal cannulas in the kids. Everybody tries to determine whether they work or not. And they've got objective things and how long they stayed in the hospital and those kind of things. But anybody who's used these, and especially in the kids with bronchiolitis, realizes as soon as you put it on the kid, the kid's respiratory effort gets much better. But we don't have any real good measurement tools for that. You can count the respiratory rate, but there's no good way to measure retractions or anything along those lines. So I think it becomes subjective, and then you, you wind up with all the, the inherent biases that go along with subjective measurements. So I think you have to be careful when you look at evidence-based medicine. I think you really would need to go by the following. Is whoever's practicing in my department or in my hospital, whatever, getting the same or better results than I am? Well, then whatever they're doing is appropriate. Whether they're following evidence-based medicine or not, it's the outcomes that matter. Let's bring it right back to what the listener asked, which is, what do you do if you practice at a place where you feel that the docs who work with you aren't really practicing the best medicine? I think you have to be very, very careful in setting yourself up as the gold standard in your department. You may have very strong opinions on how something should be managed, and you may have literature to support the way you believe it, but that doesn't mean that you're right, and it doesn't mean the literature's right. You, again, have to be really careful. It's the outcomes. If they're getting the same or better results than you are, I'd be really careful about approaching them and telling them that you know the right way to do things. I mean, certainly it depends on your relationship in the department. I think within our department, we have a very healthy respect for each other throughout the department between the PAs, the MPs, the docs. And there is zero problem with any of us questioning what someone else is doing or how they're doing it. And more times than not, whenever I say, why are you doing it that way? will basically teach me that they've got a better way to do it than I do. But if I know that they're doing something, I go, you know what? I, I know I have a better way of doing it. I'll tell them, I'll say, look, you know what I've, said, I've done that works? And they'll listen to me respectfully. And then they'll, they'll either say, yeah, let me try that. Or no, I've tried that before and it didn't work. Actually, we're really not that civil with these conversations. We more resemble sitting around the bar debating who's the best sports player or the best musician. But at any rate, it works out very well in our department to freely discuss uh, techniques and recommendations amongst us. Getting back to your question, though, you really have to be careful if you're going to say everybody's got to do things your way, otherwise they're wrong. And I think if you do have an individual who's clearly you know, off the, the bell-shaped curve in the way they're managing things, they're giving ivermectin to their COVID patients or whatnot, well, then that's something where you can look at their outcomes and you can say, hey, listen, as a department, we need to make a decision. We are not going to do this any longer. But that's got to be a departmental decision. That's, that's not your call to tell everybody that they're not doing things your way. The other alternative is you just find a department where everybody practices like you. Good luck with that. But there are departments. I will say with, within our facility, our practices have a very, very, very narrow deviation from each other. We are pretty much practicing the, the, the same way. And that's mainly because if someone's got a good way of doing it, we will borrow from them and do it the same way. 
What about in those circumstances where the doctor in question is clearly practicing bad medicine? I think you, you have to be very careful. There, there are docs. We, we've seen consultants come down to the department and do things that are, are questionable. And I, I think for me, the way I generally approach those types of people is to not say, don't do that, is to ask them why they are doing it that way. So I might say, like, why are you trying to put in an ultrasound-guided IV without using local anesthetic? And, you know, they'll give me an explanation, in which case that opens the opportunity for me to explain, you know, that, that they're flat-out barbarians and you wouldn't want someone jabbing around your arm for 20 minutes trying to find an IV without, you know, doing some local anesthesia on you. So it opens up a dialogue between you and that individual. You know, and if the individual just says, I've always done it this way and it's worked, it's like, that's true. But, you know, here's something that I've, I've noticed that makes it a little bit easier to do, or it's a little bit more comfortable for the patient or those kind of things. But if you open the, the dialogue with them, with asking them to explain to you, it really opens it up as, hey, you may be smarter than me. Teach me what you know that I may not know. And then if what they tell you doesn't make sense, you can come back to them with your explanation. I think if you just approach them straight away with, hey, stop doing that, you moron, it tends to get the conversation off on a bad foot. Ultimately, though, if you do have someone who's practicing way outside the norm, that's something that you as a department need to decide that you're going to approach because it reflects on the entire department. So if you have someone who's got a bad approach to something and it's causing a lot of pain or it doesn't work that well and the patients are returning for repeat visits and stuff, that reflects on the whole department. And pretty much when people describe an emergency department, they don't describe a physician, they describe an entire department. And as a group, you really don't want your whole department looking like that. So that will allow you to bring enough pressure on someone to adjust their behavior so it is more in line with what you want to see done in your department. All right. Thanks, Al. Very enlightening as always. Love your perspective. Thanks very much. I'm just postman. The postman. And that's it for the mailbag this month, Swami. All right. Well, don't forget to keep those letters coming. Big Hole Basin's got a big hole river. And a couple things you might not know about the Big Hole River is that it flows in a north direction along the Pioneer Mountain's west flank and then makes a U-turn to flow in a southeast and south direction along the Pioneer Mountain's north and east flanks before making another U-turn to flow in a northeast direction to join the north north Big Hole Basin. Okay. Mega, 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 monster. Like that? <laughs> All right, everyone. It is time for the mega summary. Mega spoiler alert. Jan, you're going to kick it off by giving us a little summary of that rural medicine piece that was so great from Vanessa Cardi. Rural medicine talks. Vanessa always comes up with the best stories. And this one is titled My Gurgling Tummy, which is just such a great little teaser. You're like, what is the gurgling tummy? What is going on here? And so it's a kind of a long setup, but the basics of it is that there's a 60-year-old guy, he's got some abdominal pain, he looks good, and there's this story about six months ago, he had drank some spring water from some random source and kind of got some vague belly pain after that with some loose stools, and then it kind of got better. And then he comes in this time, and a week before this presentation, he also drank spring water again from the same source, and nobody else in the family really has symptoms, and he's got some pain in his upper quadrants and a lot of gurgling and bloating. and so she kind of walks us through what's the differential diagnosis here. Of course, we're all thinking about parasites, waterborne parasites, giardia. Is it celiac disease? Is it H. pylori? What could it be? And this guy's belly exam, he's got some tenderness in the epigastrium, kind of left upper quadrant. 
but she palpates this big, firm mass in the middle of his belly. And she puts her stethoscope on it, and it's pulsating (laughs) as she lays it on the abdomen. And so she gets an ultrasound, and she looks there, and she sees this like huge hypoechoic mass there in the middle of the belly. And she's thinking, of course, we're all thinking it's vascular. And so she gets a colleague to kind of help her, and they sort of anchor the ultrasound down a little lower and look at the aorta and look at the bifurcation and work up. And they're not really sure it's vascular. So anyway, the guy gets transferred to Montreal, his, his, the tertiary center. And long story short, the patient has a huge pancreatic pseudocyst. And that was what they were seeing and what they were feeling. And the pulsations were the aortic pulsations that were transmitted through the fluid of the cyst. Now, he didn't actually have any history of pancreatitis and his light base at this point was normal. But kind of putting the pieces together, it sounds like he probably had had pancreatitis. And this is the sequela of that. So it was, you know, a really interesting piece. And the take-homes here were when you're doing ultrasound and you see a very abnormal finding, and you sort of alluded to this in the intro when we talked about pneumonia and abnormal lung findings, like find something that you can anchor in on that is normal and then sort of work your way back from there. And that helped them sort of figure out what this might be. And not all things that are pulsatile in the abdomen are aortic. Those aortic pulsations can be transmitted through fluid. Jan, I have two takeaways from this case. Number one, I'm not drinking water out of the ground. I'm a city mouse. Water comes out of a tap. That's how you drink water out of a tap. But number two, and I think this one's more important for us as emergency medicine clinicians, is that sometimes the patient will link something to their symptoms, and we have to make sure that we don't get too convinced that that is the link that we have to be making. Because here, the spring water had nothing to do with this guy's pseudocyst. It clearly had nothing to do with his presentation, but it's easy to have that early closure and say, oh, spring water's the culprit. Here's some anti-parasitic medication. Here's some antibiotics. Go home. You'll be fine. And meanwhile, you're sitting on this 17 by 17 centimeter pancreatic pseudocyst, which probably needs to be looked at by someone. Totally. I have to say, I totally did anchor in on that spring water. I was convinced and I was going through all the parasites <laughs> in my mind and, you know, and then it just totally took a different turn. Love it. All right. Our next segment was one of the ones that I mentioned up front, the procalcitonin rant by Justin Morgenstern. We know that procalcitonin has really had an uptick in terms of how many of these we are obtaining, not just in the emergency department, but across the hospital. And in the emergency department, our major hope is that I can get a procalcitonin on an undifferentiated patient, which will then give me their diagnosis. So they have infectious symptoms. I get a procalcitonin. And if it's elevated, it's bacterial. And I'm going to hit them with antibiotics. And if it's not elevated, it's viral. Then I can kind of call it a day. But it just doesn't work the way that we want it to. And, And that's what Justin really points out here. When we look at respiratory infections, sensitivity and specificity aren't so great in distinguishing bacterial from viral sources. And actually, procalcitonin performs worse than our own clinical judgment. Sepsis is another place where people really like procalcitonin. Sensitivity and specificity under 80%. Not great for ruling it out. Same thing with pediatric fever, where we want to make sure that kid doesn't have some kind of a dangerous infection. And so these are places where we often talk about procalcitonin, but it doesn't hold up. One of the places where there may be an emerging role is in stopping antibiotics, but that doesn't really apply to you and me, Jan. That is the patient we've started on antibiotics. We've admitted them. Somebody else is going to follow that procalcitonin. But don't be surprised if they say, hey, totally fine what you did. Get a procalcitonin so we can trend it to see when we have to stop the antibiotics. That's a very reasonable thing. Although even Justin will point out, there's not a ton of data to defend that. And I think what we really need going forward are studies that compare procalcitonin to clinical judgment. That really is what we need to know. 
is the procalcitonin better than what you and I are doing anyway? It's kind of a womp womp. We all had you know, so, <laughs> such high hopes for procalcitonin and it hasn't panned out. And in fact, I'm glad to see at least that I think that emergency physicians have been skeptical about procalcitonin. I don't see it being ordered a ton in my department, which I think is good. The stopping antibiotics is how it's used in our hospital. We have some infectious disease leaders in our hospital. And so they, I know that they do use it for that to help shorten the course of antibiotics by trending the procalcitonin. But as you mentioned, that's really not relevant to our practice in the emergency department. And so that's really the only way it's being used in our hospital. Absolutely. Brian Hayes. Well, infection to infection, let's go into some antibiotic issues with Brian Hayes and Gita Pensa. Absolutely. So they did a great segment this month that was really based off of a few listener questions. So it's a bit of a potpourri, but it's really all antibiotic focused. And the first question was just a review of antibiotic treatment in C. diff and specifically when to use fidaxomycin, which is you know, an antibiotic that doesn't really have any other uses other than C. diff treatment at this point. And they walk through what the choices are, oral vanco, there's oral metronidazole, there's fidaxomycin, there's the all too popular fecal transplant as well, which is not the focus of this piece. But they kind of walk through, you know, if you have that first episode of severe or, or non-severe C. diff, this fidaxomycin or oral vanco are really the two first line options now, and metronidazole is second line. Now, fidaxomycin is a macrolide, and that means it's bactericidal, it inhibits RNA polymerase, and when you take it orally, it turns out that only small amounts are absorbed systemically. Most of it stays in the GI tract, which is also what oral vancomycin does. It's a BID dosing, it's a very expensive drug, but it's a good review of the fact that it is a macrolide, it is kind of first line, there are some advantages, the BID dosing versus oral vanco, which is QID, and the cost. So it's a good drug to know whether you have access to that drug or your patient has access to that drug or not. Question number two had to do with a review of the five classes of cephalosporins and how to think about them. And this was a fun sort of walkthrough of memory lane, remembering like how you learned all these different generations of cephalosporins. And I won't walk through all the details, but remember there are five generations. That first generation, which is cephalexin, is probably the most common one there, largely active against gram-positive drugs commonly used for skin and soft tissue infections. Second generation, you add on a little more gram-negative coverage, including H-flu. This has in it cefuroxime in this class as well. Cefoxetin and cefotetan, you add a little bacteroides coverage there, so a little anaerobic. Third generation, now we get into the ceftriaxone class of drugs. This is the class that broadens gram-negative coverage even further, but it doesn't cover pseudomonas except for ceftazidine, which has some coverage. But now that opens up the fourth generation where pseudomonas comes in, and that's where the fourth generation makes some progress, and that's where cefepime is. Now, fifth generation, these are the brand name ones that are very expensive, not often used. There's a few ones in this class as well. The trade names are Zerbaxa and Avicaz. The generic names are ceftolazone and tazobactam, a combo drug, and ceftazidine plus avibactam. These add coverage for MRSA. So now you have kind of the whole broad spectrum, plus pseudomonas and MRSA. These are all IV drugs, the fourth and fifth generation, all IV drugs. Great review. And then finally, they finish off with a little talk about cross-reactivity between cephalosporin and penicillin allergies. And the bottom line here is that this has really been debunked. There's very little, if any, cross-reactivity. And if there is any, it's with the first and second generation cephalosporins because it's a side chain issue. And those are the only generations that have these similar side chain issues. So, you know, it's very unusual, but that's the only generation you need to worry about it. So it was a great piece. Love the review. Thanks, Gita and Brian. 
And Brian's published on this issue of cross-reactivity. He's got a couple of pubs out there that really shows that it's not a real thing and you actually worsen the patient's care when you listen to these cross-reactivity things and don't give the patient the best antibiotic for the problem that they have. So it's really important for us to know all this stuff. Great review of antibiotics. Let's be honest, Jen. Sometimes it feels like we haven't really talked about some of these basics of antibiotics since we were in med school. So it's a really good review. Pediatric pearls. Our next segment was Eileen Claudius talking to Patrick Walsh about Bell palsy. Bell palsy, Jan, not Bell's palsy. There's no S on the end of there, unless there is, because sometimes there is. It's a very confusing thing, Bell or Bell's palsy. But in this particular piece, they say Bell's palsy. And what Patrick really wanted to get into here is the pediatric presentation of Bell palsy and what we need to do in terms of our examination and treatment. One of the things he points out is you really want to make sure you're actually dealing with Bell's palsy, that it is the upper and lower face that's involved, not just one or the other, because then we are more worried about central causes and looking for some of the key findings that could tell you what's the cause of this. So looking for things like otitis media or trauma or a rash that could be consistent with HSV or Lyme disease. And then one of the things that he points out is this dogmatic teaching that when you see a kid with Bell palsy, you have to be worried about a new cancer diagnosis, specifically leukemia, lymphoma, or brain cancer. And the data tells us that while it is more common in really little kids that present with Bell's palsy to have a new diagnosis of cancer, it's still pretty small. It's less than 1% of those kids. And so what Patrick recommends is not taking every kid who's young who has Bell's palsy and doing a million-dollar workup on them in the emergency department, but rather looking for things that could tell you how to treat that Bell's palsy and then making sure the patient has proper follow-up to make sure it gets better and that there aren't other signs that are going to push down that road of let's work them up for a malignancy. And as far as treatment, we don't have great high-quality study in pediatric patients on corticosteroids and antivirals, but corticosteroids do seem to be pretty standard care amongst pediatricians. And then we look at some of the common things that we should be making sure to look for, like Lyme disease. And if the patient has Lyme disease, you can go with doxycycline. Doxycycline is safe in kids. If they have any herpetic lesions that make us think this could be a herpes infection, so we're going to go with acyclovir there. And then again, otitis media being a common thing that causes Bell's palsy in kids. It's a great review. I will not be able to stop saying Bell's palsy. And even you in describing it, <laughs> I, Megan, I said it you both flipped ways. back and forth. Yes, you did. I was listening to see if you do it because it's just natural to say Bell's I'm palsy. Trying to, no, so I'm trying to make, I want everybody to feel included, Jan. It yes. doesn't matter which way you say it. Bell or Bell's, we still love you no matter how you say it. It's like Down syndrome. It's not Down's syndrome. It's Down syndrome. And Bell's palsy is even harder to stop saying. So it, I know it's Bell palsy, but I'm telling you, everyone, I'm going to keep <laughs> saying Bell's palsy. It just comes out easier. Bell palsy just doesn't, it doesn't feel right. If you learned it once the wrong way, you're done. It's stuck. It's stuck <sighs> and you can't change it. I, and I'm, <sighs> I'm trying, Jen. I'm really trying. But you know what happens is every time I say Bell palsy, someone says, you mean Bell's palsy? I'm I like, know. no, I don't. <laughs> yes. Mega spoiler alert. All right, Jen, let's get from Bell Palsy to our headache story from Wendy. Oh, God, this was such a good one. You're right. So Wendy, who's our, one of our producers here at MRAP, she's kind enough to share with us her story of her personal journey through a headache, an unusual headache that took a little bit of time to figure out what was going on. This is a story of a headache that starts behind the eyeballs. It's a frontal headache. Sounds a lot like a sinus headache. And that's where everyone was kind of stuck for a while, that it sounds so much like a sinus headache. It didn't really respond to over-the-counter analgesics. She developed some photophobia. It felt different from headaches that she'd usually had. She had some nausea, but no actual vomiting. And the key to it was that it was very postural. It got better when she would lie down. 
and it was worse when she would stand or sit. And so they go through a little bit about Wendy's history and sort of what happened here. She hadn't had an LP, although it sounded very much like a post-LP headache. And she ended up being seen in the ED. Of course, she ended up going there. And she got a migraine cocktail and some labs and got a CT head, you know, non-con and COVID was negative. And she gets discharged with a diagnosis of sinus headache with an ondansetron script. And the thing is that it just didn't go away. And now things started to get worse. She got some pain through the shoulder, shoulder blades. She also had some phonophobia, some sound aversion that started as well. And it turns out that along the way, she was consulting with some of our MRAP folks, including you, I believe, Swami, she mentioned as you, someone that she reached out to. Yeah. Yeah. And embarrassed to say that I did not catch the diagnosis. It was not me, but, but I am reassured by there were so many of us and none of us, all of us were, were lost. We were a little bit lost on what was going on. So in the end, Vanessa pulls out this paper that was actually written by Jess Mason and a bunch of our MRAP colleagues as well about postural headache. And this postural headache is a low pressure headache. And it turns out this is a spontaneous CSF leak from a spontaneous dural tear. And these happen. They're very unusual, but she had one. And it turns out the treatment for these is you can do a blood patch like a post-LP headache, or it will just resolve over time spontaneously. So three to four weeks, it'll go away. And in fact, her started to clear up. Around four weeks, she started to feel better. And she ended up having a recurrence. She had sort of a mechanical fall. She ended up having some whiplash movement of her neck, and the headache came back. And so she went to Northwestern University in Chicago, where they have a CSF leak center. That is like the ultimate of like academic, of you know, specialty <laughs> clinics is the CSF leak clinic, where they see them. And she had an MRI, which confirmed her diagnosis. And so it was just a great clinical story of an unusual type of headache that we should be aware of. And it reinforced the point of take a good history. And remember that when your patients tell you something like those postural qualities, believe them and ask those questions. What makes it better? What makes it worse? And try not to put a label on things when you don't know what it is. It's okay to say, I am just not sure what this is. But, you know, when you label it with sinus headache, even though you're not convinced, you know, you kind of get people anchored on that, that diagnosis. So, you know, spontaneous CSF leak, it's a thing. And again, I learned a couple of things from this one, Jan. Number one, go to Vanessa first. If you, if you <laughs> have a problem, you're not sure what it is, ask Dr. Cardi first. She is the most likely out of all of us to get it right because she once again swoops in and gets it right. But also number two, if you and your colleagues that you work with have published something on the topic, you should probably know about it. And I am embarrassed to know that so many of us forgot about this paper that was published really out of our group until Jess was like, oh yeah, postural headache. Didn't we publish something on that? And, and, <laughs> and lo and behold, the answer was right in front of us the whole time. <sighs> All right, Jan, let's get to our next segment. This was on bursitis. One of these run-of-the-mill things that we see, but maybe we don't always manage as well as we should because we just don't know exactly what we're supposed to do. And so Gita Penso went to Neha Rocker and said, Neha, walk us through this. Walk us through everything about bursitis that we need to know. And I think that what they really did was hone in on a couple of areas that are really important. Number one is differentiating septic bursitis from septic arthritis, which can be a little bit difficult. But in septic bursitis, the range of motion in the joint should be maintained. It should be reduced in septic joints. And if you do happen to get imaging like an x-ray or an ultrasound, if you see a joint effusion, that's not bursitis. There should be no joint effusion in bursitis. And then number two is differentiating simple bursitis from septic bursitis, because we do see lots of bursitis that are just inflammatory but which ones actually need antibiotics or, or maybe even drainage or maybe even just a needle aspiration to figure out what it is. And this is a hotly debated area of whether you need to do that diagnostic needle aspiration 
we did review an article in February 2022 on EMA that basically said, if you think that it is a septic bursitis, you don't have to tap it. Just start them on antibiotics. They'll be fine. And Jan, I have a little bit of a problem with that because it's really hard to tell if something is simple or septic bursitis because they're both warm and they're both red and it can be really hard. So I do like to tap these, but I think that there is some room for a little bit of clinical nuance here in who needs a tap, who doesn't need a tap. And it is good to know that you don't have to fully drain these, that most of them will get better with antibiotics alone. So I think there's some really important things in here to learn. I hope that we get more research, more data telling us exactly how to treat septic bursitis and make that diagnosis. But for now, I think we're left with, if you're not sure, putting in a needle is probably a good idea. If you're 100% sure, you probably can go with antibiotics alone. Are you telling me that procalcitonin is not going to help me <laughs> tell the difference here? Well, we have an upcoming segment on procalcitonin <laughs> in septic bursitis. We're going to get right on that. You'll see it next month. Oh, man. So many, so many full circles here. Yeah, it's a great review. I was also like trained to tap these, so I have a hard time not tapping them. But I am, you know, I did listen to EMA and I heard that paper and I do think there's, it gives you room now to make various decisions, right? Like as you mentioned, if someone really doesn't want it tapped, you don't have to tap it. You can start with antibiotics and there may be reasons that you don't want to do that. So, you know, I did think this was a good review. Bursitis is really common and I think it's a diagnosis we don't always reach for. So educating yourself as to where the common sites of bursitis are, you know, greater trochanter bursitis and there's some bursitis around the knee. You know, and it makes you more sophisticated in your musculoskeletal diagnostic vocabulary. So, you know, get that one, get bursitis into your vocabulary. Pediatric pearls. Jane, this month we got a double dip with Eileen, a second segment from Eileen. Let's get into that one. Right. So Eileen also gave us a lovely segment with Diane Birnbaumer and Alex Groman on breaking bad news, specifically in the pediatric ED, a focus on pediatric deaths and how to deal with families and this kind of goes over how to break bad news in general, but then also dives into some nuances with children. They go through the spikes mnemonic, which may help those who like mnemonics. And it goes through the different stages of what you need to do, setting it up, getting the patient's perspective and perception, the invitation of how much you know information are they ready for. K is for knowledge, giving them the nitty gritty info. E is the emotions we need to address. S is summary and strategy. I personally don't like mnemonics for this type of approach. I think that you just need to be a really good human being and empathize with people and give them your full attention. But there are some things that you can do wrong in, in giving bad news. And so they go through a few of these other little pearls. For example, with pediatric deaths, family presence during resuscitation is a bit of a controversial area, but I think most of us would agree that it can be helpful and it can certainly help parents avoid, hopefully, prolonged, complicated grief in the sense that when they see the whole might of the hospital trying to resuscitate and save their child, there is something about seeing that that can help with closure. Now, it is not appropriate for all people. You need to have somebody with the family, and they walk through kind of what that looks like ideally. But there is literature to say that it can help parents to see the resuscitation. In pediatric cases, there may be, on the part of parents, a lot of self-blame. And especially when there's a death, because they feel that their role is to protect their child. And of course, they feel like they failed when a child dies. And so it's really important to step into that space and to explain that there was nothing that they could have done. In the case that was presented, it was a pediatric asthma case. But to really you know, explain to parents that this is something that's not your fault, it's really important to let them let go of that grief as much as you can. The question came up about whether they can hold a child after a child's died. And if there isn't any legal obstacle to them doing it, you should let them hold that child as long as they want, and maybe even let them go home with a lock of hair or a footprint or something that they can take with them. 
and to make sure that they understand that when they leave, that that child's not going to be alone, that we're going to take good care of them. Let parents ask you questions. Let them know that you're around to answer questions. They often do think of things later. It's good to let them get in touch with you to close those loops in their mind about what may have happened. And then remember that we also need self-care. You know, this is hard to do. You know, you need to turn off your phone, go into a room, tell this awful news. And it's hard to do this and bounce back and just see the next patient. So take care of yourself and your nurses and your team. And this is a great piece to review how to do that well. There's a lot of good reminders in here, Jen, for those of us who have been doing this for a while. And there's a lot of good lessons for those of us who haven't done it or haven't been doing it for a long time and, and need to know how to do this the right way. And honestly, my favorite part of this segment is just hearing Dr. Bernabalmer's voice. She is such a giant in our field, a legend, and her experience passing that along to the rest of us who can really grow from that knowledge, from her experience, because that experience is what really helps us. It's why we always go in with our residents when they're doing that death tell, when they're giving that bad news so that they feel supported. And then we can also give them feedback on what they're doing, knowing that they're going to be doing it for a long time. And we want to know that they can do it the right way and, and that they can do it in a way that really allows the family to get the information they need to feel that they're heard. Absolutely. I also, I did a talk on this at MRAP1. And so there's a, another, if you want to watch a lecture on it, I, I, a lot of, it's amazing though. I listened to this piece and it was, you know, a lot of Diane's pearls were similar things that I said. So I, I was happy to know that I was doing okay. <laughs> Long. Jan, that brings us to our last segment of the month on alcoholic ketoacidosis with Britt Long. And when it comes to alcohol-related presentations, Jan, is there anybody that knows more than the emergency physician? I mean, come on. This is what we do. This is, this is our bread and butter. We do this all day long, every day, and twice on Sunday. We know this stuff. And yet, I still find some good reminders in here about alcoholic ketoacidosis. The biggest one to me, the biggest pearl that we have to be focused on is the fact that there is some underlying stressor that caused the alcoholic ketoacidosis. So don't just think it's the alcoholic ketoacidosis, but look for the pancreatitis or the pneumonia or the cholecystitis, whatever is underlying that, that brought that alcoholic ketoacidosis out, it's going to be vital for us to identify in order to treat the patient well. And simple alcohol ketoacidosis really does rely on fluid resuscitation, electrolyte replacement, giving them some sugar so they can turn off those ketones. But we really do have to be focused on figuring out why, what caused it, what can we do to reverse it? And I think if we do that, we're taking really good care of these patients as long as we're looking for those electrolyte abnormalities, making sure we fix those fluid deficits, and then finding out what caused it in the first place. Yeah, it's another one of these, you know, when your body's an endocrine crisis, you know, why did you get there? What tipped things over and, and not losing sight of that, you know, underlying etiology and, you know, getting too focused in on the labs and not thinking about what happened here. So I do believe this is totally our job. This is very much, you know, right up our alley. It was a great review. Hadn't reviewed it in a while, actually, so I, I really enjoyed it. Excellent. And Jan, that brings us to the end of the month. You know, we talked about it up front, how we loved all of these segments. There are some really great ones in here. Go back and listen again, especially that piece on how to talk to families when their child dies. I think that's one that you need to listen to a couple of times to really let those messages sink in. And Jan, one of the things that you said in there that I think is so important is to not forget to take care of yourselves. And everybody out there, we have had a rough couple of years. But I hope everybody has taken some time to take care of themselves and, and is going to take some time to take care of themselves as we enter the fall. And Jen, usually at the end of the show, I talk about how much I look forward to seeing you again next month, but we're actually giving you a little bit of a break. Mel is a magnanimous boss, has given you the month off, and we're going to have Jess Mason back on as a co-host. And, and I'm looking forward to working with Jess. I'm not going to lie, Jan, it is nice to mix things up, but we'll miss you. We will miss you. And I'm sure the listeners are going to miss you too. 
You know, variety is the spice of life. I'm sure there's people out there that won't miss me that much. <laughs> Jess is so wonderful, and she's going to be great. And I'll see you on the other side. It's going to be great. So thanks for the month off and, and for picking it up with Jess, who's a real pro. Absolutely. And everyone out there in MRAP land, don't forget to keep doing what you do, because what you do matters. Next time on MRAP. Do you go to save the brain first, or do you try to save the heart first? And then in the next five minutes, basically he starts waking up. He actually tells a joke within 60 seconds of waking up. On paper, I was still thinking that this was likely a benign viral infection. But of course, anytime a patient comes back with the same problem, I think we all start to question ourselves a bit. What is the most common sexually transmitted disease in the United States? Go ahead. And they have promised me a most unfair and disastrous fight. And that's what I'm expecting for today. Hey, it's September again, and September 1st means the beginning of the meteorological autumn. No, stop cheering. We only care about the astronomical autumn, which starts on the autumnal equinox, which, if you remember, is a day after the 21st of September. The 22nd? Yes, it's that magical day when the sun will cross directly above the equator, signaling the start of the astronomical autumn season. <laughs> Wait, what? Doesn't it have to do with the length of the day? Ah, see? No, it doesn't. You were probably taught in school that the equinox is when there's an equal amount of day and night in one 24-hour period. This is not true. It's not? No. What you're thinking about is called the equilux. Equilux? That sounds Shut like- Shut up! Ow. Stop interrupting. The equilux is the date when day and night are evenly split, and the equilux doesn't happen on the same day for everybody. I didn't know that. Yeah, if you live in Mumbai, India, for example, the equilux happens seven days after September 21st. So September 28th? But if you live in Wiltshire, England, it's four days after September 21st. Why are you not saying September 25th? The equilux all depends on your latitude. Yeah, like I've always said, whatever you put out in the world, the universe, even the sun. No, latitude, not attitude. Oh. So what's in Wilshire, England? A bunch of rocks called Stonehenge. But the pre-Celtic pagans who built Stonehenge between 2600 and 1200 BC didn't call it Stonehenge. They didn't call it Wilshire either. We don't know what they called it because they're all dead and they didn't write anything down. Pagans didn't really care about the equilux or the equinox. The only thing they cared about was the winter solstice, apparently. Pagans. Yeah, and then the Celts arrived around 1000 BC and they found the stones. They made up all these stories about how Merlin created them. And then the Romans found it a thousand years later and dumped some trash there and fast forward all the way to September 21st, 1915, when the Antrobus estate was being auctioned off because the last remaining heir to the estate was killed in World War One. What are you talking about? Getting to it. And one of those lots that they were auctioning off was lot 15, which was, you guessed it, Stonehenge, because Stonehenge had actually been owned by private families for hundreds of years, and now that the last beneficiary was dead, it was up for auction. And you know who was at the auction? The Romans. No. The pagans? Are you paying attention? The Celts? Ow! No. Ugh. Cecil Chubb. Who? You mean Sir Cecil Chubb. Yes, but he wasn't knighted at that point. Anyway, he's a rich lawyer guy. He was at the auction, and he was supposed to be there picking up some drapes or something for his wife, and he ended up bidding on Stonehenge, and he won for 6,600 pounds. Then he went home and his wife said, Where are my drapes? And he had to explain about getting an ancient pile of rocks instead. You bought what? She wasn't very happy about it. And for the next three years, she was pestering him about the drapes. And so he finally gifted the whole shebang to Britain in 1918. And the crown said, thank you. We're going to give you a knighthood. Boom. He became a knight. But one of the stipulations in the deed was, you got to let people see the site if they provide a, quote, Payment of such reasonable sum per head not exceeding one shilling per visit. 
Well, I went to Stonehenge in 1999 and it was like 12 pounds or whatever. And now if you go to Stonehenge, it's 22 pounds 80. Which seems like a lot more than a shilling. Well, what about inflation? Yeah, I thought of that too, and then I did a little bit of digging, and it turns out, so back in 1918, a shilling was worth 1 20th of a pound. Then in 1971, Decimal Day happened, and the shilling was abolished, but due to inflation, 1 20th of a pound was about half a pound in 1971. Get to the bloody point! Which, adjusted for inflation to 2022, comes out to... Seven pounds, 54. Which means the current price of admission is more than three times what Cecil Chubb wanted it to be. Where is this all going? So, why is the Royal English Heritage Foundation not upholding the legally agreed to wishes of Sir Cecil Chubb? Um, that's not something I would deal with. Um, let me see if yeah. I can give you... I've got an email address for them, but it'd be so worth... I didn't get anywhere on the phone, but I wrote them an email and I haven't heard back. Which means... If you're the crown, you can make legally binding agreements with people, and when they die, you can do anything you well bloody want, because you're the crown. Also, you owe me about 15 pounds, so thanks a lot. Happy September, everybody.